0: Good evening, friends and lovers, girls and mothers, sons and daughters, jack of all trades, master of none, Mr. and Mrs., Ozzie and Harriet, Siskel and Ebert. I don't even know what I'm saying now. I feel like I'm delusional. Um... Richard may or may not be attending tonight. It's not certain either way. So I'm not going to waste lots of time pretending like I have a level of certainty as to his arrival or not. So I'm just going to dive into it. I mean, I am... Maybe I am going delusional because I think this... How do I phrase it? I don't wanna be repetitive. I feel like in being repetitive, especially in this particular format with Colin where there's people who's, who have likely heard me repeat this spiel many times, it loses utility. And I'm not telling you anything new, but I am repetitive in my own head about this. Like I feel and hear myself as sort of continuing with the same sort of internal monologue, in part because I want to check to see if my kind of long-term prognoses are holding up, as in any way at least directionally accurate in the analysis or in the just observational awareness. And I do think this is a really useful thought exercise. And unfortunately, maybe people are who are listening right now are not the audience that needs to hear it. I should probably go and like address a joint session of Congress or something. That might be a bit more productive. But really, I'm serious. If I had told you two years ago, okay, that the U.S. would be in a position where it would be waging if you want to call the proxy war an intervention, that's not really even the point. The nomenclature—it's engaged in a military operation in combating Russia that has just resulted in the Kremlin being bombed. I mean, I wouldn't have believed that because it would have sounded like something that would be made up to like get a rise out of me, or it sounds like something that would be planted to discredit me for buying into it. Now, I realize that this drone strike or series of drone strikes on the Kremlin yesterday was evidently not the most destructive attack that's ever been launched on a stationary target, but it was still... The Kremlin being bombed. And although I find these OSINT types, open source intelligence and geolocation expert people annoying at times, now and then they do furnish some useful information. And there was one thread that I saw, and I posted a screenshot of it earlier, where they specify, meaning the guy who who was who put this thread together, specified that the part of the Kremlin complex, and I've never been there, so I don't have a first-hand understanding of the layout necessarily. But the whatever part of the Kremlin complex it was that was hit with the explosion, that was the presidential office of Putin. Okay. And I, I don't know. I feel – you would think that this would be something that would really – Um, concentrate the mind for people but the thing is now that we're at like 14 months of this and you get a development that would have been seen as mind-blowing in a just moderately different era but now everyone's a nerd to it because that's how the escalation ladder works and I know this has gotten to a point uh, where it's a cliche with me, but the frog-boiling metaphor, the escalation ladder, it's all about incremental inermint or um, incremental subordinate so people don't recognize that insane things keep happening and the mountain of insane things keeps growing higher and higher and higher because they keep piling up. Because you don't notice the individual gradations in the increase in the height of the mountain. I mean, that's a ridiculous metaphor that I just went with. But you get the—I I, I mean, I don't know how to really convey this to people anymore in a way that will make any sort of impact. Not that I really perceive my role as like having a big activist impact, but I do have to say that you know when the. Invasion was first launched in in February last year. I did have an immediate thought that, although it would not be my ordinary MO in in this latest, I actually wanted to see if I could be of any use in maybe helping to organize, not necessarily a protest, but some kind of uh, organizational meetings, just some sort of gathering, something, where people who... We're trying to exercise some foresight about the escalatory potential here. Could maybe have a meeting of the minds or pool resources or something. It seemed like something had to be done that was outside of the norm, given the circumstances. And, you know, I don't think it's proper to claim a vindication. That's really not what it's about. But, like, a, a lot of data points now that are on the record that have accumulated since I had that first sort of premonition in February 2022 about the escalatory potential, They've, they're, they have been borne out, and they're more and more borne out as time goes on, and they're getting more extreme. I mean, this is an extreme event. I don't know if Build the German newspaper, is 100% credible. I actually have spoken to the journalist uh, Julian Ropke, I think his name is, a little while ago, just on something that was uh, needed help on, and he was perfectly nice and uh, helpful. And I know he's a kind of a hard, he's a Ukraine partisan, but at least he's sort of transparent about that. And he puts out information that seems like it's been journalistically verified to some degree. And a couple of days ago, actually, it was just after I signed off from calling on the last, uh, the last time, last Thursday, I saw this report that in build... They were saying that. Oh, by the way, everybody, there was a drone incursion <laughs> into some industrial park, I guess, on the periphery of Moscow or somewhere, and there was an assassination attempt on Putin. Now, I, I'm not like lamenting the uh, th- this for some sort of appeal to the humanity of Putin or whatever. That's not the issue. Okay, it's that the. The insanity of the U.S., of a U.S.-backed military force being so off the leash, so off the reservation, so, I guess, potentially just fundamentally uncontrollable, if the U.S. even wants to control it, which is unclear. I don't even think that there's a fully cohesive, really understanding bilaterally between the U.S. and Ukraine as to what the nature of that relationship is. It's just this uh, kind of momentum lurch, where no individual actor really has a firm grasp on the situation, which is a recipe for disaster. That was what happened with Vietnam. Okay, people, I think have been misled, maybe or at least you know, I you know, I'm of the age where the first war I was really privy to on a significant level was Iraq. That was shock and awe. That was a big invasion that started out of nowhere. That wasn't this gradual, incremental intensification of warfare over time that was done in a subtle way to sort of pull the wool over the eyes of the public. And so it was much easier to be tuned in to that event as something that was, you know, jarring. This is is Vietnam, and and I don't invoke a Vietnam parallel as a reductive parallel, meaning that in every regard the conflicts have meaningfully analogous characteristics. They don't. I do think that the one parallel, though, that is necessary to focus on is simply that incremental intensification of the military commitment over time that kind of flies under the radar or at least does not get subject to nearly enough scrutiny and then it's essentially too late because the policymakers and the bureaucracy perceive themselves as being boxed in to a conflict that they can't even turn the tide on or they can't shift directions on because they've already so invested enough where it's like a sunk cost thing for them. And sunk cost fallacy is how this would generally be referred to, but I don't think they're thinking in terms of those sort of more uh, economical calculations because that would have to probably exist in the realm of rationality. And for a lot of these people who are in charge of the policymaking apparatus, it's just not conducive to rationality for them in terms of what the logic is for this intervention. That's not to say that if you sat down with Jake Sullivan, he couldn't come up with some reasonably, you know, at least coherent answer to a question you I put to him. Um you know, I've heard From people that among the cadre of people in the Biden administration who are, you know, the most central figures in the Ukraine situation, supposedly, and I'm not even sure that I buy this, frankly, but supposedly Jake Sullivan is the most in favor of restraint. Right. So he's the least zealous. And he's typically contrasted with, uh, you know, Blinken by uh, Newland, of course. <clears throat> and then Biden is like understood to be sort of situated in the middle between them, which uh, I'm not sure I fully buy. I would have to have more direct sort of experiential data to really be confident in that being a correct characterization, because it could also be a very self-serving characterization in that, oh, there's a team of rivals who are presiding over this and not to worry because we have a whole diversity of views and may the best argument win. You no, know, Abraham Lincoln, team of rivals. Uh, that was the cliche that was invoked. for I don't know if people remember that, but when that Steven Spielberg movie came out, I think it was right around the time that Obama won the 2008 election. And so there was a whole clamor for Obama to convene a team of rivals where – People who just, who didn't agree with each other could still have a respectful engagement and then come up through the push and pull of the policymaking process with the best solution. So that meant bring on in Hillary Clinton, who you just spend an entire protracted, like tediously protracted Democratic presidential primary cycle running against, supposedly on the ground that her foreign policy judgment was Was intolerable. And the country needed to turn the page on the Clintons. And, you know, the Iraq thing could not be overcome in terms of endorsing her as a leadership force. And then, whoops, turns out she's the Secretary of State. Anyway, that's a tangent. You know, one of the things that fascinates me, and maybe I'll try to... Uh, I've been I've been working on a long-term writing thing now, which is why I haven't been publishing a whole lot recently in terms of written stuff. The one thing I've I been thinking about trying to incorporate in terms of a kind of long-term project in some form, I don't even know what form it would take. I'm just in a very initial sort of germ of a thought phase and, and even thinking about this. But it's just like the inanities... And the utter sort of lunacies of like how war psychology operates. And I know this isn't a new topic. I read a book on um, war propaganda in World War I uh, last fall I think it was where they would go through just these these uh, extremely manipulative and even sometimes pretty clever psychological tricks that would be kind of foisted on the public you, you, through propaganda but also through other sort of you know basically manipulation methods. Where you, you you really can get people just not having any mooring in a coherent logical framework, it's it's fascinating. Like, and you see an example of that with this um, drone strike on the Kremlin, right? So apparently, because the Russian government, you know, the who uh, Dmitri Petrov or whoever the spokesperson is for the Kremlin. Whoever it might have been, I don't even know exactly. I know Medvedev put out something, in, uh, you know, deranged as usual, you know, threatening. I don't know. the uh, Threatening like um, probably apocalypse or something. But the Russian government ultimately said that Ukraine carried out the attack. They also blamed the U.S. for the attack. I don't know if they're alleging that the U.S. was directly operationally culpable in the attack, but it almost doesn't even matter. Because whatever the precise operational, operational details of any given drone strike or missile attack or military operation, the, point, the, the reality is – and this isn't even an ideological view or a political view. The reality is that if the U.S. is going to be the state that is wielding the power such that it is subsidizing the very existence of this warring state, then it by transference bears responsibility for what the state it's subsidizing the existence of does. But that transitive property of uh, moral blame sharing or blameworthiness apparently has been cancelled. People just don't grasp the concept. But it was just crazy because the operating principle or the, the, the founding the foundational premise of how people were viewing this situation. I'm talking about, I guess, you know pro-Ukraine people, people in the media, you know that kind of crowd. Because Russia put out a statement saying that it was Ukraine that did it and it was an assassination attempt, that meant that everybody's everybody's interpretation, everybody's thoughts on what transpired had to be organized around a rebuttal of the Russian statement. So even if it happens to be the case, which does happen at times, that the reality of the situation as best we can ascertain it aligns with what a state – has said, we can't then, even if we're convinced of the accuracy of what the state has said about an event, we can't countenance endorsing their characterization because we're first and foremost antagonistic toward the state. And by the way, this could happen with the United States at at times as well. It could happen with Europe. It could happen with, I mean, this wouldn't be a unique phenomenon vis-a-vis Russia, Um, And there are are times where like a State Department press release or a Defense Department communique will have an accurate depiction of something contained within it. And if you're going to just reflexively reject ascribing to that depiction just because you don't want to be in accordance with what the state is saying, then that's also a logically fallacious sort of. Pivot, that you should be mindful of not succumbing to, or at least that's I, I try to. Um, but you're not going to be able to explain that rationally to most people who have now been radicalized over 14 months and are dug in and are not going to relinquish what they see see to be the sacrifices that have been made for their side. And you know, the sunk cost fallacy uh, probably is not going to be available as, a, as an argument that you can soberly put to them and have them change their mind. Um, and so we just then deal with the absurdism of people being angrily um, incapable of simply describing in, in kind of basic Sorry, I got a phone call. popped in. Um, I thought I disabled that, but who cares? Uh, What was I going to say? You can't reason with people once they have been in sustained war fervor over an extended period of time. And perfect evidence of that unavailability that they, they evince for... Is that you have a truly passionate com- commitment in these, you know, pro-Ukraine circles to refusing to characterize what happened at the Kremlin, the drone strikes, as an assassination attempt or any even something of significance? Now, I don't think, I don't know, I don't have any necessary evidence. That would lead me to believe that there was a strong likelihood that the strikes were actually going to kill Putin. But that's not really the point. The point is if a drone strike is (laughs) carried out on the presidential administrative office of a state leader, there really aren't a whole lot of contexts in which people would struggle so mightily to. Call that an assassination attempt. Now, maybe it's not not a particularly effective assassination attempt. Maybe it never had a strong chance of killing the president. And maybe the, the idea of killing Putin wasn't even the singular priority in the calculation that went into carrying out the attack. But the point is his office was bombed. Whether he was there or he he wasn't, the office was bombed. And you can't tell me. I mean, please, I I shouldn't even have to give this theoretical counterexample because it's just so glaringly obvious. Just can you imagine if a drone strike was carried out on the White House? I mean, do I even have to explain why I'm invoking that as a counter narrative to just sort of illustrate the principle here? It wouldn't matter, I don't think, how effective the drone strike was, like, or it wouldn't have mattered if Joe Biden didn't happen to be in the White House that evening. I think we could all pretty well foresee how that would be received by the media, by the political class, by the general public. I mean... Go to Wikipedia sometime if you're interested and look at just the historic list of presidential assassination attempts. Some have been more formidable than others, but, you know, there was a guy in 1993, (laughs) which is kind of a wild story, who uh, flew a little Cessna into a, uh, I don't know, was it a Cessna? It was like a small, it was like a single engine plane or something, flew it into the White House, presumably to kill Bill Clinton. Now, Clinton didn't happen to be in the White House. Um, but the guy still flew a plane to the White House. So, yeah, it was called assassination attempt. And just like that, getting to the minutiae, like whether something is assassination attempt or not, you're never going to be able to come to any kind of consensus on it. Because, again, the starting point from which they're approaching the issue is we must not countenance the characterization that's being put forward by the evil state, Russia. Okay, And so when that's the position, they're being explicit in just declaring their unam- unamenability to reason. Now, I don't want to posture as though I'm this pinnacle of human reasoning or like I personify what it means to be a rational actor in the world, but I'd like to think that I at least strive toward Adhering hearing just to kind of basic, uh, basic contours of what it means to be open to rational interrogation or or thought or exchange or debate, and they're not. I mean, and when I'm, who am I referring to when I say they? I don't even know anymore. You know, just the blob of people who have this kind of level of emotional investment where. They're furiously denying the notion that this attack could be characterized as a assassination attempt. And even to leave aside the assassination attempt thing. I don't know if Putin was there or if he wasn't. Or even if it would matter if he was there to be able to reasonably call it an assassination attempt. The point is the Kremlin was bombed. Okay? That is lunacy. That's just not something that would have ever been even contemplated as a remotely tolerable scenario for the entirety of the cold war and even in the for pretty much the entirety of the post cold war era they've gotten to a point now i mean you have to admit and maybe you one could lose sight of this in your if you're sort of immersed in online bubbles where there's a basic consensus as to You know, the need for skepticism on the war policy or um, not buying into conventional wisdom or just understanding of sort of the broader scope of the issue that might be missing or is missing and just kind of more conventional media narratives and so forth. Maybe it wasn't effective on you, the nature of how this issue was handled propagandistically, but they have been shockingly successful. In inuring the public to such a degree that a drone strike on the Kremlin by the U.S.-backed military it's single-handedly subsidizing and operationally coordinating the combat missions of, that just doesn't register as a particularly big story I guess. I mean obviously it's been covered but it it almost seems like if I had told you that this was a potentiality two years ago – you would see that as like a world standstill still type story where everybody drops what they're doing and understands that they have to get to the bottom of how it could possibly be that there was this sort of this level of direct warfare between the world's two largest nuclear states. And I'm probably not saying anything particularly new for a lot of people, but I don't know, I just feel like sometimes it's necessary to just rehash some of this just to kind of uh clarify mistakes. And I find it's helpful even for my purposes. So, all right. Uh, who's up? AB Sullivan. Hey, how are you? Are you there? AB Sullivan. Did I get your handle right? I hope so. Hey, sorry. Okay. Hey. Hi.
1: Um, uh, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Um, thanks for doing the call in. I just wanted to, uh, uh, in a, you've taken a lot of heat for principled stands on no me heat. <laughs> yeah, no, you have, um, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, um, I, uh, it's, it's rare to find people, um, covering, um, covering the Ukraine conflict. Um, and, uh, d- covering Russia's actions in terms of uh, seeing Russia as uh, making advances, so so much of the so much of the propaganda is pro-Ukraine. Um, I, I I wonder what you think the endgame is as far as the Russian Federation is concerned. And um, I, I'm, I'm also curious to know whether you have any knowledge of specific details in the negotiations between or the proposals made by Xi Jinping uh, in these meetings with Zelensky.
0: So I have a big piece that I've been working on for months now that I'm hopefully going to finish relatively soon, within the next week, that has a lot of heretofore unreported information that I've accumulated that I am going to argue adds up to what I think is now the more or less indisputable case that the trajectory that the U.S. is on vis-a-vis the Russian Federation is the pursuit of the imposition of regime change in the Russian Federation. And I want to word it sort of circumspectly because people might have a bit of a visceral reaction to that and think that I'm stating that, you know, next month, Joe Biden is going to invade Moscow. No, I'm not saying that there's going to be some sort of inordinately dramatic culmination to this regime change aspiration that's being pursued policy-wise. I'm more making the point that the policy trajectory is oriented in, ineluctably, in that direction. I don't know if it will result in regime change in Russia. I don't know if it will backfire. I don't know what will happen exactly. I don't know if we're all going to die in a nuclear war, but the point is that I just think there's overwhelming evidence that it's kind of I- implacably trending in that direction and the momentum is also, is almost not able to be um, buffered or, or uh, reversed. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a lot of... De- there are se- several data points on this that the media just has no appreciation of, and I take some responsibility for this myself because I've been... Uh, a bit derelict in getting this information out there, but I wanted to make sure it was rock solid. So I've taken a while, but you know, there's, I'm going to have more of spe- specifics in the article, but it, it's no longer deniable as far as I can see that the Ukraine government is on a kind of uh, pathway of radicalization that so long as the United States retains this policy p- posture that it at least claims, you know, vis-a-vis Biden and Blinken and whoever, that it at least claims it's upholding where they're deferring strategically to Ukraine in terms of setting the wider um, objectives of the war, then they're deferring to a population and a government apparatus that is Radical radicalized, radicalizing. I mean, we, we see it, you see evidence for this all the time. Look at, I mean, they conducted, it would appear, an attempted drone strike assassination on the Kremlin against Putin. I mean, that's a radical step. Like, you can't, t- I don't, you can't tell me that you would have at least been a bit startled if you heard that that was going to happen, like, you know, I don't know, a year or so ago. Um, and, and, so, and and they've they've also codified in their policy sort of portfolio that they use to govern the presidential office and the the legislature in, in Ukraine, they they've they're increasingly putting together a body of law prohibiting any engagement with the senior leadership of Russia, including the personage of Putin, who they specify and effectively putting their position on the record that only regime change in Russia is a viable means by which they will entertain the idea of resuming any sort of diplomatic relations. And so, you know, I don't know if Andrew is here, but I, I like I can anticipate something he's going to say. Oh, well, the U.S. doesn't really want to win, right? So what are you talking about? They're not going to bring about regime change. No, go back to the bleed Russia dry postulation or thesis. What's happening now is perfectly consistent with that. You wouldn't expect if the United States was trying to achieve regime change in Russia by bleeding it dry rather than having some sort of dramatic, you know, uh, all out confrontation, you wouldn't expect them to be dumping $20 billion a month into Ukraine, you'd expect them to be dumping $800 million a week or something, which is around what the latest package was, I think, that was deployed. Um, It's incremental, because they they can't even, uh, just on a political level, they have to, meaning the U.S. policymaking elites who are involved in this, they have to be mindful of not appearing to be excessively belligerent or ex- excessively warlike in their approach. Um, and there's a lot of an- good analogies throughout history that shed light on this, even World War II. I mean, was just reading something yesterday about after... Um, Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, there was this whole uproar in the U.S. over to what degree the neutrality acts that were on the books at that time were going to be modified. Franklin Roosevelt wanted to modify them to allow for greater latitude in uh, making arms shipments to the belligerent parties um, that the U.S. was supporting, namely you know, Britain and France. Um, and the point being, Roosevelt had to walk a tightrope. He was adamant, at least in at, at least giving the public impression, that whatever he might be doing to adjust the US positioning regarding the war in Europe, it was all in service of ensuring that the US would not be in the war, would not be roped into the war under any circumstances, would maintain steadfastly its, its neutrality. And of course, there's not a perfect analogy here with what Biden or the administration is doing, but you know, th- there's there's got to be a bit of a, there's got to be, they're going to exercise circumspection, okay? And, you know, Zelensky was in The Hague today, not because he was on trial, but because he was interfacing with this sort of preliminary tribunal structure that's in the works and being constructed that is supposed to be at some point, putting Putin on trial, meaning forcibly imposing regime change in Russia because I don't know how else you put Putin on trial and then throw him in prison once you convict him for whatever genocide that you're accusing him of. Uh, so I, I, I try to maintain composure on this stuff, and I'm not suggesting that like there's an imminent world-ending scenario that's like literally just around the corner that we all need to be running around their hair on fire about, but like, it's maybe only a step or two away from that. (laughs) And uh, you know, then you throw in China and it's just, to me, there's a lack of appreciation and I know uh, for the magnitude of this, and maybe this is a silly or superficial way of looking at it, but like, if I just go to my main Twitter feed, which I don't even look at that often anymore and see a bunch of media people talking about, I don't know. There was something today with like Clarence Thomas, where his he had a uh, a nephew and the, his donor buddy like paid for his school, or it's like okay, I'm not gonna claim that scrutinizing the finances of Clarence Thomas is inherently unwarranted or inherently unnewsworthy, but I just can't, at least for my own sort of psychic purposes. I can't relate to being super emotionally invested in that because you think it's so high stakes that you really ferret out the truth on whether Clarence Thomas got 150,000 or 175,000 for tuition for some private school from some you know rich asshole that he goes to the Bohemian Grove with. Actually that is sort of a funny thing to look into. Maybe I should be more abreast of that. Um but the, 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 you get the point though, like it's just, there's a, the magnitude of this now is just crazy intense and I, I just don't really see, I don't see a whole lot in the way of the kind of scrupulous, diligent, rational inquiry that I would think would be necessary and and that, if that's the case, then, you know, it's, probably game over. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be a fatalist and say that we're all going to be annihilated. I don't think, you know, I don't know. I just, uh, it doesn't lend itself to optimism. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but that's just me sort of riffing.
1: No, thank you. Um,
0: yeah, that was, that was very interesting. Thank I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Um, AB Sullivan. Appreciate your uh, compliment. And I know I like hearing myself speak. And I know Gator does as well. So <laughs> hopefully he can, uh, he can counter. <laughs>
2: hey, Michael.
0: How you doing? I'm okay. How's it going? By the way, people, yeah, if you're yeah. listening, my, um, uh, if if Richard doesn't come back, I just got a, my app was just going haywire because I'm getting phone calls from my girlfriend. I don't know if she's in here or not. But she's gonna be the co- she wants to she's demanding to take the space of Richard. So at least on a special occasion, you could have a pleasant BBC voice giving like a little side commentary.
2: Um look a lot of what you're saying is to me, the way I view the world and, and the media sphere and the information flow is is simply a reflection of the degree and power of the Western propaganda system that's Roughly embodied by the mainstream media, the di- digital Maoist approach to capturing institutions and the government. On top of that, in pursuing its whatever, well, you could call it a strategy, but it's essentially serving the the the, the corporate interest, right? It's not. It's not. It, none of this surprises me because that's how I view the world, and I subject my view to ongoing backtests, saying am i correct in viewing this have uh, and you know you try to make predictions about what what will roughly happen in the world and if those things come to bear come to pass then your understanding is reasonable is the way i look at it and the problem the problem is that well one of the one of the things that you're touching on here is is that like if you look at the rand document um overextending russia I mean I think it was printed in about 26 Yeah, I I know the
0: document 2019. I feel like somebody uploaded that document to some sort of conspiracy website consortium. Not saying that it was an illegitimate document for people to be to read to be aware of. I've read it myself. But it's like the one Rand document that people seem to know on the internet which is just I don't know, interesting, but uh I you know I, I would just caution against seeing that as some sort of uh, rosetta stone never
2: no, yeah. about it hang on yeah the, the point of making about it is that if you read it then basically a lot of what has is in there is has been demonstrated politically and on the battlefield right but the interesting bit is that in the conclusions rand completely fucks up and it says that russia is weak on economics and something else and it's strong on something else and something else and actually it's completely the opposite way around. Russia's d- d- demonstrated resilience in the areas that RAND suggested it would be weak. And it's been weaker in the areas that it's, RAND suggested it would be strong. And the, the weak, what, what, are it, what are those areas? I read it years I just, ago, I don't remember. Yeah, I've, I've got it up on the screen. Hang on. So it says Russia's greatest vulnerability in any competition with the United States is its economy, which is comparatively small and highly dependent on energy exports. Russian leadership's greatest anxiety stems from the stability and durability of the regime and Russia's greatest strengths are in the military and info war realms. Right now, there's a table in, that goes into a bit more stuff. But if you think about that, sanctions... Well, the, the, completely- the, the strength is not,
0: has not been borne out in that Russia doesn't have these super effective, intimidating information operations that are able to like set the tone for international
2: discussions. I
0: feel like you know yeah, yeah, yeah. the okay, Russian yeah, propaganda yeah, yeah, yeah. apparatus okay, right. has been
2: incredibly feckless. Yeah, so so Russia's strength has been its economy because it it depend it's dependent on huge levels of commoditize commodity exports which everyone always wants, right? And s- sanctions have never worked against Russia. If you do any research into the effectiveness of sanctions on Russia, you will find instantly that they have never worked, right? And so Rand is wrong. And then, as you say... But hold on, hold on. In stuff-
0: fairness to Rand, because I actually... You know, Rand has plenty of problems in that it's institutionally a an outgrowth of the sort of... You know, the it's, it's the Pentagon's in-house think tank, okay? And so it's going to have a certain institutional slant. But, however, they do have people who produce material for RAND who are smart and knowledgeable about things where you're getting some decent information that you might not have access to otherwise. Um, And when they say that Russia Russia's liability is its economic strength vis a vis the United States, I mean has that been somehow disproven? I think that the sanctions have had some effect after they've been imposed, after like the, the more the the radical ones that have been imposed post February two thousand twenty two, it's not as though they've been a hundred percent ineffectual. They just haven't been as effectual as the kind of more grandiose optimists in terms of promoting the U.S. perspective would have would have wanted. So it's not like it's not as though Russia's totally immunized or totally uh, immune to the Drop the um, the damages wrought on it by the U.S. assembling this massive sanctions coalition. I, 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 I've got, just, I've
2: got, it just—it just—it
0: it 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 seems got, like, but the U.S. The, what the U.S. The U.S. just exaggerated the short-term efficacy of the sanctions, right? I, 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 I do. I do think they're actually. Th- I, mean, I do think the sanctions are weakening Russia. I don't know. I, it's it's slower and more sort of um maybe imperceptible than, than than the hardcore sanctions you know cultists might want to think because that's the thing that they always go to as their just default policy uh tool but well, i I, th- I think it doesn't make sense to say that it has no having no effect at all
2: hang on so if you look at russia's if you look at the cia fact books write up of russia's import and export situation. 50% goes east and 50% goes west, right? And it's all in basically commodities or raw and raw materials and energy exports, roughly. And it imports generally finished goods, right? And computer tech uh, and stuff like that. Very high-end stuff, right? Now, the sanctions have not... Have been completely bypassed by Russia, so everyone is still buying, including Europe and the u s they are still buying russian oil and they're buying it above the fucking price cap. This means that those end that end of sanctions is irrelevant right russia's e- economic um, situation at the moment is that even though the initial uh, attack sanctions attack Pushed its the ruble down to by nearly fifty percent. What happened within less than a couple of months? It was it had bounced back and it is now the it was basically stronger than it's ever been as a as a as a currency, and it's on parity almost with the dollar at some point I think or it was, it got close to to being at parity right relatively speaking. That's probably overstating actually, but anyway. Um, and also, if you actually understand anything about you know the, the the last 15 years of what russia and china have both been doing which is buying gold and preparing to get off swift and being able to shut down your own internet so that people to lock out everybody else from your own internet they've they've known that this situation is or something like it was coming which is why they don't need swift anymore and which is why they've got the belt and road initiative the the brics initiative which is growing and and they've got um, they're basically tabling a new currency and they're de-dollarizing and they're doing bilateral co- direct currency swaps all the time with each other to buy each other's goods and services across an increasing number of countries. That is not a win for any form of sanctions in the short or the medium term. Cool.
0: Here's, a he- here's a headline, March 28, 2023. Quote, U.S. has replaced Russia as Europe's top crude oil supplier. Now, I'm not saying that that's somehow dispositive. Hold on. I'm not saying that's dispositive as to signaling the economic demise of Russia or that they couldn't diversify their um, economic relationships with the East to a greater extent and maybe over uh, compensate for whatever diminishment in the market share that they enjoy in Europe. Clearly, that's a, that's an effect. I mean, that's a, an appreciable effect that the economic warfare policies have had where it would have almost been unfathomable to to think that the US could supplant Russia as Europe's top supplier of oil exports. Um,
2: but, 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 but it's only done and that... And that's only been because, in a year. Right, okay, but hang on. It hasn't done that in any way that's good, right? Because... That's like bunging a rolled up mattress into a pipeline and then running around telling yourself that you 've won when actually all you 've done is you 've fucked an entire continent because you haven't the u s has not effectively replaced um, europe 's energy supply it 's ineffectively replaced europe 's energy supply, which is why energy prices have quadrupled or more for 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 the entirety of Europe and the well, uk.
0: But how about for the United States? It seems to pretty well serve the interests of the United States to have supplanted Russia as the chief supplier of oil to Europe.
2: Yeah, but in the short term, even in the short term, you are now dealing with like how is that not how, how is that
0: not something that would be seen as an economic boon to the United States? Whether you want to say it's good or bad on some sort of normative level, that's not even what I'm talking about. It's just that the, the U.S. maneuvered to achieve what would have been an almost you know, unthinkable uh, sort of shift in th- forcing Russia out of this key market that had been crucial to its whole state funding
2: okay, but th-
0: wait. Th- situation.
2: So, so, but, you, but you're missing what I said before, which is that Russia, Russian oil is still being bought by Europe. It's simply being at lower levels via India.
0: So you're saying you're saying that Russia is is exporting to Europe the same at the same levels as it would have been in 2021. I don't think that's true. I know I, 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 I'm aware. I'm aware of the I'm um, aware of the end run that they do over Europe. And actually, I spoke to an Indian government official who told me something amazing, which is that the U.S. signaled to the Indian government that it would not seek to penalize. Indian uh, oil shipping companies for technically violating the Russia sanctions, if it just like used certain outward-facing branding on the you know the yeah the vessels and things. I mean it's it's yeah, ridiculous. But been it's, for yeah. ages. Well, but I I, th- I think they I think they um, bolstered that or they added additional components to that in light of the. Current sort of diplomatic um, dynamic, uh, but I don't, oh, I, don't, I don't have great specifics on it, but so e- either way. But, so, but I, I just don't, so, so, you're, so you're saying that the United States has not surpassed in any meaningful way Russia in oil exports to Europe since, say, January of 2022?
2: No, what I'm saying is this. If you think that this is Russia versus, versus the U.S. with Europe jammed in the middle as a bunch of sucker vassal states, which is essentially what they are, right, whatever the U.S. may have achieved has been done at the expense of essentially let, ripping the mask off its own face and then conducting what I would describe as an act of continental wide rape, right, using the world's biggest terrorist false flag attack in the form of Nord Stream, which has also been coupled with the largest, um, environmental crime ever, ever in, ever in one go. Okay. And everyone knows the U.S. did it. Hold on though. No. Don't you, don't, do you, even you, dead, dead sleeping do, citizens on, are waking on. up to realise that the U.S. is a completely fucking criminal enterprise. That's not uh, a win.
0: Well, I mean, I think that could be very easy to overstate as to there being this sort of generalized epiphany. I don't know. I'd have to see some data backing up that assertion, but here's what I wanted to ask you. Tell me if you relate to this memory that I have, which is around this time last year, I was being told with utter confidence. i on Colin and other venues, maybe even by you. I don't remember specifically, but that it was just a foregone conclusion that the, Hike in energy prices in Europe was going to be so extreme that it was going to destabilize the entire continent. You know, there were going to be like once in a generation economic ramifications where you'd see governments falling all over the place, and there would be a popular uprising within the populaces of these countries—Germany, France, whoever—to demand that the Ukraine war no longer go on the same course it's been and. That there be a shift in policy and uh, demanding that not to continue the proxy war because we don't want we want to get our Russian oil imports back. That really has not happened in the main to the the extent that a lot of people were forecasting. Yeah, there have been hikes in energy prices in the UK. I know is particularly pronounced. Or what was it last winter? Um, I know people talk about the mildness of the winter just in terms of the temperature, but it really, whatever economic damages were inflicted as a result of the sanctions regime and as a result of the drastic sort of upheaval in the energy policy, uh, it was within enough of a manageable range that it really didn't get to the level of kind of like jeopardizing the stability of the continent in the way that people were utterly convinced would be the case. And so I don't know. I mean, do you think that uh, do you think that's reasonably accurate of me as a for me to summarize in that way? Do you think that should like cause anyone to maybe I'm not even saying you in particular, but like, people who might have had that perception of what the ramifications would be in Europe economically, if it didn't really rise to that level, it didn't really change the status quo as to the war policy, which it hasn't. I don't know. I feel like that should prompt a bit. Of a reevaluation, or that should at least right. warrant a bit of a reexamination of maybe some of the premises you were operating from.
2: Okay, wait. So, I I never said that. To no, you. not 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 um, not you. I'm
0: just trying to channel a certain yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of sentiment. I,
2: I, yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and I don't go along with the, that time frame on that sentiment because when you when people try to make those kind of assertions, what they always do, they always Get the timeline too soon they they est- they estimate the timeline too shortly right because what they fail to understand is the amount of energy that's held inside the financial system and they do not understand how much power there is in money printing right which is exactly essentially one of the primary tools that all of the countries in the u in the u- uh, europe and the uk have used to ameliorate some of the phenomenal rise in energy prices And also the media is suppressing the degree of damage that's going on economically now, right? So I'll give you an example. If you look, start looking into the number of companies that are going bankrupt inside the UK and in Germany, uh, they are increasing continuously. Why? Because they can't afford the energy prices partially to run their businesses. Like bakeries are, are folding, right? Because they can't burn the gas to cook the bread to make a profit at any sensible price, right? And they're just folding. And this is on top of the deficits that
0: they... Well, hold on, hold on. I mean, I don't deny that there's going to be a very pronounced media blind spot as to being hyper aware of whether a certain kind of coverage is going to be seen as reflecting negatively on Ukraine or or somehow bolstering Russia or, you know, whatever its narrative impact is, that's obviously going to be a huge consideration. But you're telling me there aren't any economic research firms in Germany or there aren't any economics departments in Germany or any studies being produced in, in Germany that are going to sort of dispassionately, I, I honestly haven't looked into it to a, to a, a kind of a intensive way but i feel like there are going to be those resources if i were to look right now as to yeah. the number what, of bankruptcies and stuff so like so how is that being is
2: right. that really being so, covered so, up so you you're dealing with you're dealing with even if that inf- information stream is where you just described it it's a lag right because the information gets published the hoi polloi don't read that information the hoi polloi wait to be told by the media and the media don't tell that information right so you have to know where to look and look or at least be reading news that's well off the beaten path, right, um, for the average sucker. And, it's, and you're saying that the average sucker is the one who's, who, when, when pinched, eventually drives demand of their government to back out of the Ukraine strategy. No, that's the, that's the, that's the, the longest time frame person that you're using as the marker. Those suckers never demand anything, and they never get what they demand because they're always the last person at the table because they're a sucker, right?
0: Okay, but tell me if this sounds familiar to you or tell me if, if, if this rings true to you. A certain refrain was going around, I would say last spring, summer, where, especially among more alt-media-type sources, you know, much yeah, of Richard, which I consume...
2: said this about energy.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, okay, I didn't want to name names. But, like, uh, there, there, were, there are people who seem to convince their audiences, many of whom have a very strong devotion to them, that there was bound to be this much more short-term disruption to the political order in Europe as a function of the energy upheaval. And then that was going to translate in short order to popular demands to change the trajectory of the Ukraine war. So even... Whatever time horizon you thought was most plausible, it is the case, right, that there hasn't been an appreciable shift at all in the EU posture on the war between May 2022 and May 2023. If anything, they're more dug in. You know, you have Germany sending tanks. Now, whether it's just a pittance number of tanks, I don't know, but it still is a fairly, you know, meaningful gesture in terms of the symbolic important at the very least. The point is if you were of if you had a notion a year ago that the economic disruption was going to be so extreme that it was just destined to make a market impact on the ability for the people in power to maintain the status quo policy wise in Ukraine and you were you teleported from May last year to May this year, and you saw that that actually didn't happen at all in any discernible way. I don't know. I feel like I'll, I'll quite a number of people in that milieu, milieu, that like analytical milieu online, which again I think is actually useful and is a necessary corrective in a lot of ways. I'm not trying to belittle it, but I do feel like if they were if you're, they were being honest, the people who kind of populate that milieu would have to recognize that that teleporting expedition. Would have resulted in them kind of being taken by surprise as to what the reality turned out to be.
2: I, I think that there's a chance that the people making these forecasts are going to be much more right in in, in next by next spring, because because the energy system or the or the, the or the the, the the potential energy that's wound up and balanced off in between the 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 increasing energy prices the increasing bankruptcies and the fallout of the longer term fallout of COVID uh, business collapse and the bigger um, economic collapse that, that we're going through now, because we are going through financial collapse, right, is going to come to the fore more into into next, through through the next winter and into spring, right? And But the thing is that you and I both know the hoi polloi don't get to demand government policy under any circumstances apart from full-scale revolution in my well, what, do, what do you
0: mean my demand i just saw a massive protest in france i, I you know macron yeah, circumvented them
2: but okay. they still
0: were making themselves a fairly formidable presence yeah, wait
2: that's in a country that has 75 to 80 percent of its power that comes from nukes so they're not even getting pissed off about um, the, the energy price. Right. Percent. I mean, one of the
0: ironies is like, that the biggest protests in France and seemingly in Europe over the past year have been around the retirement age in France, not, not around the, energy that's prices. the last
2: straw. The, yeah. France has got a major problem with its government being essentially the neoliberal privatize everything thing. It's going through...
0: Well, sure. I mean, d- d- I mean has there been... I mean I actually haven't followed it that closely. I honestly don't know has anyone suggested that part of the sort of collection of grievances that went into that round of protests in France recently, that any of the, the factors had to do with Ukraine policy or yeah, energy were, there policy? Were,
2: there a definite no to NATO, um, contingents in the early phases of protest at the beginning of, uh, you hmm. no, halfway through last year, there was a, there was a, there was a, Build up of no to NATO. That's going on across the continent. Well, like, no, I, I'm meaning I'm talking about important.
0: the ones recently,
1: like within the yeah, past I mean, two months.
2: Well, I don't know. If, I don't know. It's hard to tell now. But you can't see through the smoke, right? Yeah. Um, people aren't really carrying flags. They're just out, so they're not necessarily what's being visible. Isn't necessarily being explained as a war specific. It's a general. It's it's now becoming a generalized discontent where the pension age is the last straw, basically, right? So, it's hard to tell exactly what proportion of it is to do with the war. But I just think you need to give that a bit more time. But what Ritter is, was always right about was that the oil exports aren't, 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 you know, are being bypassed, right? And his point in the US was if the, if the um, Gulf refineries are still working, which are all tied for Russian crude, the only other substitute you've got with that is Venezuelan crude. There is no other, without those two, few, those two types going into that Gulf refinery, you'd have to radically recalibrate the whole thing down there, and they haven't. So that means that these, you're still buying Russian um, oil, right? Now, but in the yeah, continent, yeah. The, 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 yeah. the Russian diesel is being bought and um, has just been told to be being bought by fucking Ukraine. That's how riddled with nonsense this narrative of what the sanctions have done for Russia is.
0: Point of information, or I want a point of inquiry to you. Last I heard, Ritter has made sort of a final prediction that he seems to be hanging his hat on, which is that Ukraine is going to be conclusively defeated militarily by, I think he said, September. Do you, does this ring a bell?
2: Okay, so no, so I, hold on, well, hold on. I don't know so, if he said September himself. But. Well, when he gave, he
0: gave a time frame that suggested the war was going to be over by this late this summer, this late summer, early fall. That was the range that I remember hearing. Okay, let's, I'll give him October. If Ukraine is not militarily defeated in by October, and October, and Russia has not militarily triumphed. At what point does the analytical thrust of a person's argumentation have to be subject to a certain level of scrutiny where they've forfeited their credibility? Like, if, if I gave that level, that, that kind of, incredibly certitudinous pr- prediction and I was putting my credibility on it and it was it's a it's a black or white thing either either Ukraine is defeated by the date that I'm saying they're going to be defeated by or they they aren't I would think I should be penalized by anybody who's consuming what I'm saying in the public domain if it turns out that I'm proven by facts and reality to have been wrong. Now, I don't know that he's going to be proven wrong. Maybe he'll be proven right. I don't know. It's unknown. It's a future event we can't say. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of, I get a little bit frustrated. And I'm not even frustrated with you because you're just a, you know, a standard for this. a certain like, um, and again, I, I appreciate people who have this perspective because I share a lot of it. But I also get weary of, What comes across at times like a lack of application of standards to certain perceived sources of authority who somehow get a pass when, if it were anybody else, and it's not even about Ritter himself per se. It's just this whole sort of – it's about not having equally applied standards across the board for the purposes of – Intellectual yeah, consistency. I, I
2: understand what you're saying, Michael, but I'd ask you this question. How much of, of Ritter or McGregor or Balletic's analysis are you actually including here? Because you sound like you're just going to judge Ritter on whether he gets the date of the end of a war, right? Well, actually, nobody forced him to, be, nobody forced them guys, to specify you, a date. If you look at those three guys, their analysis has been about 85% correct. Right? Nobody forced then, Ritter to specify
0: a date and make a hard and fast prediction.
2: Well, I I'm not sure that he has. I me. heard him say I'm it. Not, okay, so, so the thing that I know that he has definitely got wrong, and McGregor got this wrong as well, was that they both predicted that there would be a large-scale Russian assault over the winter once the ground froze. And actually, the fighting's turned out to be positional attrition. Right. Which is something I mentioned to you a long time ago. And you and Richard both rubbished and says, if they don't, but if they don't take more territory back, then how, then they must be losing. Well, that's not what positional attrition war is. And, 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 you know. Wait, I rubbished the
0: concept of attritional warfare? (laughs) Yeah, I said to you,
2: I said to you that, that, um that russia doesn't need to take any more territory now that it's retreated to a hard line of defense and you and Richard both went no that's ridiculous how can you say that because of course it's about taking territory no it's not and what they've done well i mean I, I, i'm my know. recollection so, now so is would it ultimately that you're would you're have been from the same the, from the same level of critique that you're applying to Ritter. Well, no, I, I, I reject. i mean no i have to I have to, I have to contest and then, and then rip you to pieces but i'm not i'm just pointing out well hang on
0: I, that wasn't me. I mean, that was, I don't recall that a specific exchange. I'll have to go back back and listen to it. My memory is I would have just kind of engaged in a colloquy with you to sort of suss out what you were asserting. I don't i don't think I would have been sort of, you know, uh, arbitrarily dismissive of the significance of attritional warfare, especially given the disparity of just state resources that are wielded by Russia Russian relative to Ukraine. I mean, Why would I reject that? But that's different. Even if, ma- I don't know, maybe it's possible that I said something that was inapt in that one exchange. I don't, I have to go look at it. But I also didn't make a factual assertion. I mean, with, with a lot of these people, it's not just about making predictions. It, they, they make like statements of fact. Yeah, Russia definitely. will have yeah. an offensive over the winter. Yeah. Okay, well, wait, so, so yeah, if yeah, I insisted I can... over and over that something was going to happen and then it doesn't happen, what what obligations are then incur to me? I mean, there has yeah, to be something, right?
2: I, I understand that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not unsympathetic to this point of view, right? Because I view each commentator, pundit, as best I can on the same basis. Do I, I judge John Kirby like this, right? I mean, he's a complete bullshit or He's he's paid liar, right? You can guarantee that nothing John Kirby ever tells you is true. He's. He's like. It's like Dennis Gartman. You would always trade the opposite of what came out oh, of the Gartman At the
0: beginning of the war, when I was in Poland, I watched him on TV saying no Americans were injured in the strike on Yavoriv in yeah. far western Ukraine. And I personally met an American. It wasn't an active duty soldier or anything, but it was, you know, one of these mercenary type guys who I mean, even mercenaries overstating it. I don't think the guy ever saw any combat. He was just there for some like weird graduate school intellectual thing where he was into like Nordic esoteric. I don't even remember. Um, but he was there he had i 've told the story before. He claimed to me that if he was positioned slightly differently on his bed, the shard of glass that rocketed at him when the place was bombed would have you know impaled his heart and would be, he would have be, would have died, but he just suffered you know lesser injuries and so I compare that with John Curry making a blanket statement that no Americans he can guarantee us were injured in the strike. And I know that to be false. I know he could kind of of try to claim it. Oh, he's maybe only talking about official active duty or whatever. Well, no, that's not what he said. He said no Americans. The statement is just on its face wrong. Um, So, yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, John Kirby is a PR apparatchik. But the people who are making these in these recurring Um, analytical sort of prognostication modes, they're ostensibly not like seen as just pr apparatus, so like it's a sort of a different phenomenon
2: than kirby right okay so so ritter and mcgregor right and Boletic are doing something well balletic's not necessarily you know, in fact they all are they're doing something that many people don't do which is essentially actually being prepared to make a, a medium term prediction right so they can be judged on that but many many pundits do not do that they simply comment on the on the on the, the technique is to simply comment on the information of the day, speak in vagaries so that they can't be wrong in the future.
0: Are you including me in that, or is it?
2: <laughs> um, actually, most people are. Yeah, yeah, most people are like that, right? So, well, so well that's in, because, because I, I tr- because that's
0: because I try to have fidelity to what I can maintain our defensible epistemic standards.
2: Yeah, but, so I, mean, I, I just
0: you know, I, I I I don't feel that it's defensible to me a factual assertion if i don't like it's a journalistic impulse maybe for better or worse but like i'm not gonna yeah
2: i don't expect you as a journalist to be able to make the kind of predictions that mcgregor and ritter are willing to make because they're making military predictions based on their experience and analysis of military maneuvering right And, and 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 so and and actually when i according to the back test i've done about their analysis of the narrative, the reality, and then essentially what their breakdown of the situation was and would be, they are about eighty-five percent correct by my own analysis, and I've been doing this since the war started. And I would say that they are, they are the t- three; those three guys are in the realm of military reality. Whereas, if you open the Times and you go on the Times News uh, the website, the British Times, um, they have a section about Ukraine. It's full of people just talking utter garbage which a month later is the
0: or, uh, times the times of london or
2: new york times times of it's both all of them yeah yeah because they are the propagandistic outlet when she brings me right back to the beginning is is just it's simply I mean, the-, the
0: telegraph is like the actually might be the all worst them, in the entire anglosphere sphere.
2: literally all of it it's all lockstep propaganda
0: can all i ask you this hold on I, I honestly don't know and i'm genuinely curious did mcgregor predict or give indication of anticipation of the uh kharkiv and herson offensives that were you know successful in, for ukraine in the sense that they retook the territory that they were seeking to retake did mcgregor give any indication that he was expecting that i honestly don't know
2: uh, i can't remember if they predicted that it would happen but what but they, what they what but what they both And all three of them got correct. Was the fact that basically the Russians decided why they did what they did was not a retreat out of fear and loss. It was well, we can't. We're too overstretched. We don't need to hold the territory. We'll we'll retreat to a defensive position and then blow the shit out of all of these people as they run across the field after. Okay,
0: sure. But whatever the reason was for the retreat, there was a retreat would they have anticipated a retreat? Or if, if I go back and watch what they were saying in like I don't, I don't know, July I don't of last year, would thing, I get the impression that they were anticipating this to happen?
2: I don't, I don't recall hearing that they, they said days before it happened, hey, this is going to happen. I don't recall that. Or you know, even
0: if they were just kind of more you know thematically in line with that eventuality. I thought they were going to make a hyper-specific temporal prediction because that would be not reasonable to expect of anyone. But just that it was like consistent with the thrust of what they were saying. I don't know. I would have. I, I. don't know. I mean, the problem with the that the at least uh, Ber- Berletic, right? That's how you pronounce it. Because I've had been on podcasts with him and stuff, and he. I mean, I don't know if you heard. Uh, like once or twice a year, I somehow get um, thrust into a giant blow up with like actually pro Russian people, <laughs> <laughs> which is like a so it's like a counter. It's like the polar opposite of the people I'm usually in wars with online. But every now and then there's just some sort of flare-up where I get on the wrong side of people who have like some kind of – I don't know how I would describe it exactly. But it's something to the effect of they are a supporter on some level of the legitimacy or righteousness of the current Russian war effort. I think I've talked to you about this before when around the whole – the uh, anti-war rage m- rally yeah, a few yeah. months ago, right? But I mean, Burletic, I mean, the guy was—you uh, know—he was screaming at me because he was. I mean, he, he got to a, there. Were, he got to a point where there was a clear barrier erected that prevented any further rational engagement because he was saying, "Oh, um,
2: what? How? What was the
0: topic?" Well, then? I mean, uh, the, the thing stuck—that stuck. That st- stuck uh, you can go listen to the Twitter Spaces recording. If you want, I mean, it was uh, mid February. Uh-huh. Um, he would not, like, I was referring to the Russian war effort, right? Or the Russian war, or the Russian military campaign, like the military operations of the Russian state in Ukraine. I was just like, referring to that as a category of phenomena that I was happened to be talking about. And he just, like, kind of wouldn't accept that that was a thing that could be referred to because, like, he wouldn't grant that, like, Russia was engaged engage in a war or waging warfare because it was purely defensive and righteous and NATO encroachment and all this, which, of course, I'm very well familiar with the entire breadth of information on that score. Okay, I don't need to be lectured about it, but I also have the ability, I would hope, to just kind of be able to reason about different aspects of a multifaceted complex conflict. And he yeah, just couldn't. And, and he just like it, couldn't. Yeah. He couldn't accept the basic logical underpinnings of what I was trying to say. And it was like it was it was striking in its irrationality.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy to call it a war and an invasion. Um, whether you whether you need to legally nuance it with the word special military organi- uh, operation because of oh,
0: that was another thing. He insisted on calling. Oh, a different he insisted question. Insisted on calling it an SMO. Like, why? I mean, do you feel like you have to go out of your way to align your uh, nomenclature.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't feel so that's necessary.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that's what they do, and then, what does that tell you that they do that?
2: Well, partly okay. So there's two ways of looking at it, and you have to reflect. It's like me are saying, "Oh,
0: he, uh, you can only ever refer to the Iraq War as Operation Enduring Freedom."
2: No, wait, wait. What? No, because that's not the same thing, right? Because it's not the one, same
0: thing, but like you get the idea.
2: Sympathetic by use of that nomenclature, and the other one is that there's a very good possibility that the very specific reason why, why Russia has chosen this nomenclature is in order to um, legitimize its actions under Article 51 of the UN Charter, right? And that is something that's rarely discussed by anyone. Ever. Well, i discussed that and with you I, here.
0: You made a good point right? on that, actually, that I hadn't been fully cognizant of. But why are you having a vested interest, not you, why does one who is of this disposition have a vested interest in assisting in the legitimization efforts of a state for its warfare, I would. Ne- I mean, the United or States calls its the, it, the United States legal calls legal its warfare all kinds of euphemisms, as well. I would think that it's probably not the best idea to try to accord my rhetorical style with how the Pentagon euphemistically attempts to rationalize its warfare. But on the other hand, if like Berletic, I had this passionate, principled commitment to the righteousness of the war effort, then I could see why you would have a, you know, a compulsion to go out of your way yeah, I mean, I, to align I, your I, rhetoric.
2: I agree with you. I, I generally agree with you that Balletic is much more sympathetic to the Russians' activity and justification for it. Not Ritter just sympathetic, over-supporter, over-supporter, over-avowed-supporter. Ritter's more explicit right. in, his, in, his justificat- in his agreement that Russia's ultimately been justified. But then so is Mearsheimer and Cohen's entire predictive analysis that's over nine years old now. They said this will happen because Russia's being pushed into a corner. And they were saying that nine no, no, no. years No, no, no. Mearsheimer,
0: Mearsheimer does not have a visceral emotional investment on the russian state under vladimir putin prevailing militarily in the way that those guys those those two guys do
2: all three of those all three of those guys really think though that russia isn't it's not that they want russia to win from the beginning they just recognize that russia militarily in their eyes, has all the no. Own. I think I don't it's think I don't. I, I, I think that's not the right way to put it. it. I
0: think yeah. that they believe that the. I don't know about McGregor actually, so I'm leaving a uh, uh, bracket him. Um, but for Ritter and Berletic, at least they and they're you know they don't hide this to their credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They believe ardently that Russia is fighting a just war. They be, they're aligned with Russia on moral terms. It's not just about about making some sort of. Objective analytical um, prognosis as to the outcome of the war fighting—it's that they have a devotion on a moral level to the justification and the righteousness of the, of the war effort, don't they? I mean, you're, you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, or yeah, am yeah. I? I'm not I, hallucinating this. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I think I think Ritter's more explicit in this, far more explicit than this. Than, than well Berletic was very
0: explicit in his Twitter spaces thing with me to the point that he was getting like the, uh, you know audibly emotional in his expressions of passion
2: yeah well I mean Ritter does that without without anybody else being involved right and um because because he looks at it and says well i I can do that too of, to be fair I mean I'm kind of a man one he builds up the entire picture and says so that is right and 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 he and he doesn't as you say he makes no bones about it right so, um, and there's plenty of people who agree with him. There are a lot of people who use calling who agree with him. Well, sure. Right? Because I, you know, that's going, why well, they have yeah, a big constituency. Know, I'm not denying they that. They've been provoked.
0: No, I mean, I'm, they have a, they have an underserved constituency. I don't deny that. But I do think if your framework, the framework from which you are examining this conflict is um, is colored by a normative moral uh, endorsement of the righteousness of one of the warring parties then I'm sorry maybe you're tethered to more rationality than the run-of-the-mill naFO guy on Twitter who's like you know a Ukraine Whose entire like life is uh, defined by their allegiance to Ukraine, but you're still inevitably subge- uh, inviting certain cognitive distortions that I think are I think just going to inevitably. Think... You have a rooting interest. It's like when you're really when you when if I was rooting for the Lakers over the Warriors in this NBA series, and I was you know I, I my heart and soul was invested in the Lakers winning. Then I'm not going to necessarily see that Anthony Davis didn't play good defense in the third quarter and whatever because I, I, I'm rooting for an out, a preferred outcome. No I'm, not no, just, no, I'm not just
2: dispassionately analyzing. I think you're doing. I think you're doing Ritter's analysis a disservice here because Ritter's analysis is born out of the logical sequential build sort of work through from all of the precursor events, including the including how you contextualize the invasion and defend it in an Article 51 um, preemptive self-defense, which has been used by the U.S. multiple times and other countries as well, right? Particularly Kosovo, the strike on um, Iraqi, sorry, Iranian uh, missiles. It's used that uh, before you even get into the... what
0: What is that all added up to, by the way? Because I listened to Lavrov at the U.N. General Assembly session last September in New York where he was spelling out at least some of the beginnings of the legal arguments that might be made or might be appealed to in terms of the international law as to how the United States had violated its obligations under certain uh, pacts of international neutrality or that the U.S. had become a co-belligerent per um, whatever convention he was invoking. And it seemed like if they had wanted to fashion a... um, you know, comprehensive argument to, on that uh, score that they might have done so, but I don't, has it amounted to anything? I haven't re- like what. What if they? What is that? What is that argumentation as to international law uh, boiled down to ultimately? I haven't really well, it seen doesn't, it.
2: Okay, so the, look look at it from both sides, right? International law has to be enforceable for it to mean anything, right? If a law is not enforceable, it doesn't exist, right? Whether it's written down or not. So ask yourself this question when does russia actually need to legally defend itself it doesn't unless somebody to meaningfully enforce any kind of law against it it doesn't recognize the icc so the icc cannot now on the other side if america and its allies really believe that um what russia has done is, is is abjectly um as illegal as they keep saying it is why have why after 14 months has nobody's put in a clear document saying this act of invasion that started 14 months ago is illegal and we need to lodge that in the ICC the best they've done in the ICC is when're well, working toward the cases about some kids they they're, they're ...using a, they're a document from Yale which doesn't even contra- which contradicts itself well no I mean they're about there there's a whole there are
0: all different there are different angles from which these prosecutions are being kind of conceptually organized at this point I mean the reason Zelensky was in the Hague was not simply to express his gratification about the ICC charging Putin for that one discreet you know, child deportation offense, but because there are all these new there are all these new like uh, multinational multinational multilateral uh, prosecutorial consortiums that are in the process of bringing about a new tribunal with a new set of legal authorities modeled on Nuremberg in which the ultimate crime of aggression would be prosecuted against Russia so they would be doing exactly what you're questioning why uh, hasn't hasn't been done yet which is declare the
2: war itself illegal in which court? in a new one that they're stringing up Right. and if Russia doesn't recognize that and none of and basically plenty of other countries say fuck this we don't either it's not going anywhere well, the defeated Germans didn't recognize Nuremberg in World War II, but they had no choice, right? But that, but that was when they were totally defeated by right. a large number of other countries. Well, that may not happen to Russia at all. Yeah, I don't,
0: I don't get the impression that the U.S. and the EU are um, eager to welcome Russia back into the Community of Nations, where there can be equal participants in like different legal arrangements.
2: Okay. But even if even if this happens and they pull it off, where does that get you? That gets you into a place where a lot of countries start going "fuck the U.S." Then we'll 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 start filing tribunals in this court for every single war that the U.S. has prosecuted in the last fifty years.
0: I don't know. You say that, but I don't know if you. Um, I uh, I did a thread a couple of days ago on um, the annual Gallup data came out for approval of U.S. leadership around the world in every country that they could poll essentially with the exception of a few they also polled China uh, global leadership ratings Russia and uh, Germany and you know Russia is like it's approval declined pretty precipitously not just in the places you'd expect like NATO member states but in Africa and other places that like are you know seen as potentially more fertile ground for Russia to Court as part of its sort of global block. Yeah, uh, it, it didn't it didn't collapse to zero, but you know, I could pull it. I'll pull it up in a second. But um, the U.S. is su- substantially more popular in lots of places now. Than, I mean, the th- my the point is that the war waged by Russia did have a negative impact on its standing in lots of countries, including in countries that are not. Uh, vassal states of American Imperium.
2: Okay, now, now, but one, but there's a different way of polling people's feelings, right? And it's not by asking them in an open forum. Do you do you think this country are a bunch of wankers, right? It's it's. Hang on, let's look at whether they're doing trade and strategic allegiance of any kind with that nation, right? But actually, funnily enough, Russia's doing all right on that front, and so is China, and they happen to be working together. Like, and in fact, the Middle East major Middle Eastern players tell you that they think that Russia and China are doing okay because peace is breaking out in the Middle East because of their intervention in that in that region. That's something that the US has never been able to do, partly because the US's whole strategy is to is to make sure that the situation is never peaceful in the Middle East. Right. So I don't I don't hold a lot of I don't think that that a, a, a poll like that holds a lot of water in the same way that the general voting at the United Nations does not hold a lot of water, partly because it's completely illegitimate and, well, not illegitimate but ineffectual forum that's rigged to buggery in the US's favour, but also because whatever people say at the UN doesn't match necessarily what they do in the international forum. But
3: that just sounds
0: like you rubbishing certain empirical metrics that don't align with your preferred
2: outlook. no, because because the other metric is who's doing business with Russia and China. Shit. So you're telling me if, if
0: Gallup found in, two, in its 2022 data that was just released this week that Russia had skyrocketed in its approval around the world and the US had collapsed, you wouldn't look at, at that as worth taking into account?
2: No, I would look at who's doing business with them. And the answer is that apparently more than half of the world is not going along with U.S.-driven sanctions. What does that tell well, no, you? I agree with that. It tells, that. I, you, I, more. I, it tells I, you more than a Gallup poll. I I, and I,
0: I would challenge you to find anybody who's tangentially associated with the media who's pointed that out more consistently than I am, and how it just blatantly and almost comically conflicts with the highfalutin rhetoric around, you know, the this alliance of democracies against authoritarianism or whatever. That you know they don't even have the, the Two of the largest democracies on earth in um, Simpatico with their project here, India and um,
2: yeah. So and I mean, Asia. you're agreeing with me if the BRI, if the Belt yeah, I'm agreeing with you. BRX, but I'm also looking at like data. For, like
0: I'm I'm interested in consuming as much data as I can consume, and not being sort of rigidly wedded to a certain thesis. If data might complicate. That thesis.
2: Yeah, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm, happy. I'm happy with that, trying to take that position, and that's why I'm saying, irrespective of this poll, who's doing numbers with Russia, a lot of the world, and it's increasing, and they're doing it in Russia's currency, right? And that is on the African continent as well. We're fucking the world up, we're fucking our world up, the Westerners are fucking our world and our empire up, right? Through this war, which people know is not matching the Western narrative and it's and we're proving the, the war to, to we're proving our own narrative wrong every day that we open our mouths about this war in the put in, in our media or our government spokes right out the even in the leaks no matter what they are whether the whether the documents are real and the information is true or whether the documents are real and the information is untrue, those leaks completely ridicule every single bit of the narrative to date right and, and and you 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 can have an IQ of 80 and still see that if you look right that's how bad those leaks are yeah. and, well uh, and, and i'm still, uh, i'm tentatively
0: still, uh, i'm tentatively scheduled not going to confirm yet but tentatively scheduled to go to the brics summit in august
2: that will am um, that will be in South Africa. To what, what goes on there. and
0: here's the catch also going to the NATO summit in Lithuania, so I will let you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. My,
0: my comparative assessment. All well, right, Gator. Uh, good to talk to you as always. Take yeah. it easy. Hey Andrew, I hope you enjoyed that.
4: I always listen to uh, Gator whenever I can because it's <laughs> it's <very laughs> yeah, he's cool. a sharp guy. Very. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I wish I was as eloquent. <laughs> well, many, any I mean, I'm sure you know that anybody with a British accent just sounds more eloquent and I, but I actually think right. they are more eloquent. There's something to do with the accent itself that just is more legitimately conducive to eloquent expression. And it's not just like the phonetics of the accent. It's like some, how it relates to verbal reasoning and things. I don't know, maybe I'm out of my mind, but like I have some faint intuition of that being the case.
4: Yeah, there's and also, there's,
0: you know, and my girlfriend is British, and I just feel like she's just innately more eloquent than me, just be, by virtue of being British.
4: Yeah, I think the accent sounds confident, and it's kind of part of why I don't like British accents. It just sounds inherently arrogant and confident to me, and like they're just right. There's something about it, <laughs> yeah, certain. Anyway, um, a couple just because the conversation was interesting, right? I wanted to make like two points on the last thing you were talking about with Gator with some of these uh, alternative uh, commentary space people, Um, I think that you're right about their moral dedication to like the Russian cause. And specifically, it comes to mind to me that these are all ex-military people. And so I think there might be, you know, if you combine the two elements of a I, I take them at their word and think that they believe these things for their own causes, not because they're being paid by Russia or China. You know what I mean?
0: That they actually – Well, no, I haven't really said that. that I, I might have no possible. reason to – I know yeah. you haven't. I know you haven't. My I mean I wouldn't – I mean, are they – you know – I don't, I, don't no, I, I don't think it's like intrinsically evil either to be paid by some entity that you are genuinely in support of, as long no. as you're transparent about it. Like, if Berletic sure. were to be paid by Russia, and it's consistent with his publicly expressed values, yeah, then who I am know. I to uh, object? I don't know that that's the case or not. I mean, tell me if you do, but you, I you get my point.
4: I, th- I don't think it is the case. and uh, But, yeah, I, all I'm saying is if you take the idea that they're genuine in their convictions and combine that with the fact that they all have a military background – I could see how that leads to a kind of almost personal relationship to this, in a, in a way that they could see themselves in the shoes of some of these well, people. Well, sure, and I, it just—I think it—it it makes it difficult to have. Burletich's
0: performance with me on that Twitter space is that I got, you know, yeah, uh, I, I roped it. into in February. If nothing else, showed to me that he wasn't lacking for uh, sincerity that 's why he was so worked up well, um, so like i i i 'm willing to just accept the 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 genuinity of the people who are taking this position yeah. i mean i don 't know why you would i mean how could why would you not be genuine and like like devote a huge amount of your life to commentating commentating and analyzing and being sort of immersed in this per, kind of this niche. If it wasn't like an expression of your genuine convictions, it wouldn't make any sense.
4: They're not rich, that's for sure. They're not, uh, you know, getting paid millions of dollars to be on TV lying. To well, everybody. McGregor
0: that's seems sure. well off, but he has a general's pension. Yeah, but
4: that's yeah. He, it's not because of the lying. He may or may not do, you know. To no, public. no, I don't it's think I don't think there's a the financial mainstream.
0: motive or any other ulterior motive other than that they believe what they're saying. I mean, I I tend to this might be ironic in that it would seem to potentially contravene like journalistic cynicism or skepticism but unless i have a reason to doubt the sincerity of people's stated beliefs i have a default assumption that they're saying what they actually mean because i don't think it's rational in most cases to just mind read on the basis of you know, my intuition about somebody or uh you know their their tone or their presentation you no know, if their their words and actions are a certain thing and i don't have any hard reason to to doubt that they are sincere in what they say that they're sincere about then i um i just go with it and i with i hope that that's that kind of charitability would be extended toward me but Oftentimes, yeah. not the case on the internet. Yeah. I oh, by actually, the way, yeah. uh, if anybody is interested, I um, today I established contact with uh, the Vivek operation, okay. and uh, tentatively they want to do a debate. Now, I don't know that I should have framed it as a debate initially because it makes me seem like Ben Shapiro, where I want to do like a mile a minute nasally. Kind of tendentious um, reasoning, where I'm accusing them of like doing a and Bailey or something, and it's obnoxious. I kind of adversarial most, questioning. Uh,
4: questioning yeah, adversarial that's argument.
0: what more I, I had more had in mind.
4: Yeah, um, like an actual journalist, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah,
0: but the idea is, uh, I think what they wanted, uh, what will end up happening, hopefully, I don't know exam- when exactly, is I'm going to meet him somewhere in either Iowa, New Hampshire, or North Carolina, and then Greenwald's going to beam in as mo- moderator for like a remote setup type thing so well but i don't know it's still coming together
4: well jenny and i were talking about this on twitter and saying how it would be great if there could be some kind of section devoted to some kind of a maybe screened caller section so that he could what am i that larry with. king but maybe would maybe broward month.
0: county broward yeah, you- county you're on the air
4: we do need a new one, and I mean, you fit the role, I guess, so <laughs> but yeah, it uh, might be outside the scope of the endeavor, but I, I thought it was a good idea just as a general concept that these people should have to. I mean, I would find a lot more interest in having presidential candidates have to answer 10 call-in callers questions than uh, whatever yeah. Megan Kelly uh, has to say, whoever I don't know. but uh,
1: no,
0: I, I think you know the more scrutiny, the better, obviously, and the more formats, the better. The thing is, though, if you're somebody like a Vivek, clearly part of your philosophy in running is to be as available as possible, because obviously he's not like Donald Trump in that he's not ubiquitously known by everyone on Earth. That he's picking up the scraps um, of media so, attention. Yeah, right, so it's it. like it's difficult to know how to exert like a leverage on a Trump or somebody to be willing to do more... Um, Types of venues. Although I actually do think Trump would be more amenable than some, like DeSantis. Oh, he's totally. just in a DeSantis is just in a um, cocoon. I don't know if you saw, but I was in. I mean, I I didn't. I now um, am familiar with the term dissimps because they all declared war on me within the past two days. Because I, I don't know, looked at like bills that the guy was signing into law in Israel, but that crossed the line for them. I wonder why.
4: All these issues you talked about, and then Israel comes up, and suddenly shit hits the fan. What a surprise! Yeah,
0: exactly. Sorry, I interrupted your uh, point before. No,
4: I'm happy to hear that about the Vatican. I was curious about it, but uh, the the larger point I was making with the—I wasn't questioning whether you think they're genuine or not, but to say that I do think that they can still call things right, even if they have uh, or or tend to be more accurate than not. Because uh, your analogy with Anthony Davis sucking or whatever to me. I think about my relationship with sports. <laughs> I don't have much of one. But when my team sucks, I start bitching about the players. Yeah. and I, I don't Probably know not a great analogy. Vision. If you've seen Purgosian recently, did you see the video today? Do you pay attention to him at all? Because
0: he made some dramatic statements today. Um, do you know I haven't the seen his statements today. I, I'm okay. not like an avid Telegram follower. I feel like I check it every now and then. I think
4: this is important enough to bring up. Okay. He- what do you say? He stand well. The setting is
1: important. He stands
0: also. The there's a there's a there's a like a um. It seems like he has. I don't know. This is pure speculation. Maybe it's slightly conspiratorial. But the whole intragovernmental uh, conflict that supposedly had broken out between Pergoza and the Shouguin, they're you know, they're always like uh, knee capping one another, and it's like Game of Thrones. You kind of have to wonder if that was, you know. Intrigue that was kind of like deliberately cultivated almost as a well, soap it's operatic ongoing. device. It's I don't know.
4: So, if, it, if that is the case, I'm sure it's being directed by powers of B in Russia, right? I and doubt it's the
0: case, frankly. I don't have any basis for thinking it's the case. It's just a fleeting, groundless thought that occurred to me because it's. Well,
4: he's not your ordinary guy, perversion. Yeah. Let's put it well, that way. What did way. he say to He was standing in the dark filming a field of maybe four rows, 12 long each of dead Russian Wagner forces, saying uh, the blood is still fresh. And he basically, in summation, was yelling for the entire video, saying, uh, Shoigu Garisimov, you faggots, where's my ammunition? And saying that these people are dying. He called them faggots? uh, There's a lot of swears. (laughs) There's probably like 12
0: different variations of how to express the concept of faggot in Russian?
4: (laughs) Yeah, well, there is. Yeah, they're very masculine over there. And he also said they go to hair salons. Um, That was in a separate statement. But anyway, he was saying that they're going to, like, suffer in hell for what's going on. And uh, he's just going off the chain. I thought um, I read a while ago, like,
0: didn't didn't Putin, like, intervene at one point and convene? Yes,
4: that was the rumor, is that he personally convened them and basically made them get together. And I don't know what the outcome was, but this still... My point is just that. Uh, I th- the larger point is that I think that people. I wouldn't say Prigozhin is not genuinely. You know, he's a he's a pretty genuine supporter of Russia, if I've ever seen one. And so he's uh, calling it like he sees it in a, in a nation where you get thrown out of the window for saying the wrong thing. Right. This is the whole meme. Right. You get thrown out of a window because they're such horrible people. They just kill everyone that dissents, and then you see Prigozhin. They do this, a fault. They do a false like, flag okay. on you.
0: Oh, that was the theme of, it's supposed to be the theme of this. Uh... Call him because yeah,
4: that's what I called him to talk. We're
0: about. just we're being uh, we're being lectured to just have as our default assumption that it was a false flag, and not any kind of actual drone strike on the Kremlin for what factual reason I'm not sure, but because we're supposed to know about the 1999 apartment building. Because it, and,
4: it didn't hit two feet away from Putin, apparently. That's the he wasn't standing in the open when it happened. I, mean, I actually
0: do think it's. I don't know the Russia. The Russian Federation was in, in such a mess in 1999, just in terms of its state capacity. But I actually do think it's very plausible that there were at least factions of the intelligence services, FSB or whatever, that did you know engage in dodgy uh activity around those bombings I, I don't know it's not like i don't have a conclusive it's certainly understanding possible. but it's, it's it seems possible to me but the idea that that should then require us to assume that every event whose like factual chronology is not, like 100 established yet we just, we're just supposed to reflexively assume that it's a false flag because it's russia well, no, that doesn't you, make
4: any sense. Even, even if you accept it. And that's the
0: standard. case. I should assume everything the United States does is a false flag because <laughs> of uh, the uh, – uh, why am I blanking on the Vietnam false flag? Now? Gulf of Tonkin. Felt Gulf of Tonkin, yeah.
4: Well, there's so many to choose from. How about WND? I mean there's so many to choose from. Well, right. W&D exactly. deal with colon Powell shaking fake anthrax. I mean the standard, even if you were to accept it, is not applied to the United States, which was – you took the words right out of my mouth. But – The, uh, (laughs) I was just going to say the last thing about this, the the whole thing about conviction, not making you call it wrong. I had seen Berletic call Kersen correctly, basically saying that it's likely that Russian pulls out before they did it. And I saw the Duran, Alexander Mercurius, say that they were likely, Russia was likely to pull out of Izium in Kharkiv, where a lot of pro-Russians were thinking, like, how could that happen and it turned out that they were, they were basically right. So some of these people have, I, I just wanted to give you a few examples. Yeah, so that, You know, they're not totally, they're not like,
0: no, I know, got, not totally I'm not, right. no. And I, I, I know the, I know the Duran guys. I've seen a couple of videos of them. I'm not like a regular viewer of any of these people necessarily, but I check in just to get a flavor of the media landscape. So I know enough to have a, some sense of who they are. But Just listening to you describe their, um, Virtues just now, it, I think, is making me realize what my more fundamental problem is. And I've talked about this before in certain respects, especially with Richard, who's, like, uh, totally incorrigible with this stuff. But, like, I just feel like there's so much energy wasted, mental resources needlessly expended on, like, a parlor game as to predicting what's going to happen in a month. Like, why do you need to predict what's going to happen in a month? Why don't you just analyze what's going on now? Like what's in the factual record now? What can you analyze now? What can can you develop insights on now based on verifiable empirical data that you can access and don't need to speculate about and don't need to make inherently unprovable statements about things that are going to happen in the future? I just don't get the, the obsession with that. It almost think, seems like a waste it's, like it's almost like a, it seems like a waste actually of those people's energies and a waste of the viewership's energies because it almost turns this sort of war analysis thing into like a like a parlor game where it's like oh who has the better prediction track record like you know it's a fantasy football league or something i mean like who cares ultimately why not just like try to participate in the project of like proffering the most truthful possible depiction of what's going on? Well, I
4: think in a way you're, you're right about things like when Ritter says when the war is going to end, right? Personally, I don't see why that statement. He did made. say that, right? That he, he said saying, September. He said, it, I don't, he might've said a month. I heard the summer to fall thing like you did.
0: And okay. Uh, I, I told Gator, I'll give him October. Well, but to then the, somebody's gonna have to explain to me after October, yeah. if it doesn't come to pass, what he sweepingly and conclusively declared his prediction to be. I what then is gonna, what, yeah. what what is then one to do?
4: You, you, you tell should, me. You should definitely look at what you got wrong, admit you got it wrong, and then say why you think you got. And it then wrong. just conv- and, and
0: then just barrel the, right on forward. The then then just keep barreling right on well, yeah. forward, making more sweeping predictions about stuff.
4: Yeah, you check your process. You look at what you got wrong in your process, and you advance. You don't just like retire from uh, acknowledging reality and trying to inform people. I would think that. Would you know, be one pr- of my
0: big um, crusades in the uh, aftermath of the 2016 election, and I was on me. I was publishing on Medium at the time. You can go you can look it up if you want. I called it only half facetiously the Pundit Accountability Project. And what I did was, I highlighted the most embarrassing. And discrediting uh, bogus uh, modes of an, uh, you know, analytical ticks or predictions or all the self-inflicted wounds that pundits across the spe- spectrum were suffering from when Trump won, because it showed that they weren't just like off about marginal issues, right? Or they didn't like. Think that something was going to happen in a month, and it ends up happening in two months. But the whole thrust, the whole like analytical uh, sort of you know orientation that they had adopted as to you know describing and commenting on U.S. politics, it was just f- foundationally flawed, as exposed by their just unbelievably blatant chronic wrongness that I, of course, chronicled very happily. Um, And I think that was a worthwhile thing to do because otherwise somehow like uh, journalists or commentary people or whomever are able to just act as though they are above any, even just basic accountability or holding their own words to them to, determine whether they were correct about stuff. And this is their job. So I don't know. I just feel like, um, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not trying to be petty. I don't even have a particular sort of uh, investment in, in scrutinizing these three particular alt media guys. Um, it's more a general point, And this even predates the Ukraine war, where I've noticed that there's a uh, a certain insularity that develops within alternate media all media circles and having been at the Young Turks and other places and been privy to enough of these sort of dynamics um, it can be distortive uh, especially when you kind of factor in like social dynamics among people who are considering themselves as members of the same peer group and whatnot I don't know if that would apply to those three Ritter and MacArthur uh, not MacArthur, McGregor and Berletico and whatnot but the point is you have to be mindful of how blind spots can emerge. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But um, what I noticed that, that these, this, there's like an epistemic cloistering going on that is very consistently noticeable to me and seems like it's warping something that's critical in terms of like the foundation of the analysis, then I do think that's worth – bringing attention to no, i just, just for the sake right. of even for just my own sake of trying to maintain consistency across the board that i can then also apply to myself
4: well i would assume that you would you would agree that this applies to you as well yeah uh, the i don't think anybody of course a problem with keeping a track record of their statements and their veracity and their uh, predictions and the no
0: do it and, and the, people
3: and, should uh, I but had to. My, I spend, I had to spend. How many I, of those
4: people I, on your list ever acknowledged for, in the first place that they got any of those things truly wrong, and then went back and explained, and not just rationalized, but actually explained the process and what they got wrong? Because that's what I would expect if someone that gets something catastrophically, you know, wrong in a big way. I would expect none of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that they're unsalvageable if it turns out that they spent months or even years on so totally the wrong track that it calls into kind of existential question the viability of their entire chosen profession and why they're even doing this in the first place. <sighs> it's, it's a bit of a di- – it's a dire predicament, but like maybe it's salvageable, okay? But they don't even try to salvage it. They just no, ignore. They ignore, been. attack. I mean – Jamel Bowie, great example. He was, he was one of the, you know, um, catastrophically wrong pundits who, I mean, you could go look at his slate columns in 2016. It's just like ridiculous. He said in September, it was either August or September 2016, literally, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. He said that there's a greater chance that a meteor will strike Earth and destroy it than that Donald Trump will win the election.
2: Yeah, and uh, we're
0: supposed to just not then just wonder whether it's that just, reflects know. on his like analytical acuity. Then, like, what is the whole profession for? Well, on the well, other side
4: of it, a lot of people that predicted Trump don't get any credit.
0: Uh, people get credit.
4: I mean, well, I think that's I think
0: that's over um,
4: from the mainstream.
0: A lot uh, of people, uh, a lot of people confabulated self-aggrandizing narratives that made to make themselves out to have been these like oracles of political insight. Like if, if they like said like once maybe in, uh, you know, June, 2016, Trump might have a chance to win. Like that means that they then predicted, you know, the, the point is yeah, there was like right. an incentive to, to kind of exaggerate. Um, I didn't make predictions then either, but I did have like certain heuristics that I laid out as to how I was thinking about that particular race that are on the record that, you know, Explain my rationale for why I thought that Trump was being significantly underrated as to his potential for winning both the primaries and then the, the general election. So I, I think I was like, you know, I, over, I overused this word, but directionally correct. But that I also admit that I don't, you know, bind myself to these, I think, sort of kind of superfluous concrete predictions that kind of veer into this parlor game. Yeah, um, type you know, But you know, I I I welcome. That's I. You were you listening when I had the call in around the World War II stuff last fall, and I spent like ninety minutes with that psychopath uh, Jonathan Katz, who I was, Think
4: I listened to it after. Okay, after, well, yeah, okay, but I, I did listen to it.
0: Like, I'm not obliged to do that. Like, I'm not obliged to subject myself to the like hate, like legitimately hateful inquisitions. Of this, like, obsessive journo oh, he's a sleazebag. He's a, he's a um, but I did it anyway because, you know what, you know, I've chosen to be in a position where, like, as a job, I get to just talk about interesting stuff on the internet. And so, like, it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make to have, like, a little bit of a testy dialogue with somebody who doesn't like me. Whatever. It's fine because, like, you know, it's a... You know, I want to, it's like a test of metal. Like, I can take the heat and lock it, I don't have to get out of the kitchen type thing. Um, And so, I mean, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I do feel like I've gone out of my way way beyond what is the norm to accept scrutiny of myself. I mean, this is part of the reason why sometimes my productivity is all screwed up because I I, uh, get, (laughs) I allow myself to be. Excessively scrutinized on Twitter, and I end up like wasting six hours a day on it. Um, that's just one example, you know. I, I so yeah. I mean, I don't exempt myself from these criticisms at all. People feel like I have been inconsistent on something or whatever. Please feel free to apprise me of it, and I'll I'll address it. After the after Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, there was a tidal wave of scorn toward me you know, Greenwald too. you know, Aaron Armade, But, you know, I, I dealt with my the criticism being directed at me where it was just believed as a matter of, you know, uh, supernatural truth that I insisted that Russia was not going to invade Ukraine, that I made, made repeated factual assertions unambiguously that Russia would not invade Ukraine. I was, like, I was made unequivocal factual statements like the kind that Ritter makes or the kind of these other types of guys make, that then they, you know, maybe not them personally, but, you know, the people who make those sorts of statements and then who do actually, um, you know, deflect and not address the contradictions that emerge. I actually never said that Russia was not going to invade it. I wouldn't do that because that's just, like, not how I approach issues, making those, like, firm parlor game predictions. But even so, you can find the substack Even so, I recognized at the time that given the criticism, there was some obligation on my part to at least try to grok what elements of that criticism might be productive to address on some level, even if, as a technical matter, it was incorrect that I did the thing that I was being accused of doing. Still, there are maybe... um, sort of there's like a, maybe the essence of a criticism that is worth ferreting out and seeing if there's anything worth engaging with on a substantive level so i did that and what i came up with is that yeah i can i don't think it's unreasonable for somebody who's just kind of like a casual consumer who who develops like an impressionistic take on me as they're consuming my content on the internet so they're not they don't spend all day with me. They don't pro- uh, probe my deep interior thoughts. They're developing impressionistic perceptions of me based on snippets that they maybe get, or like maybe they read something here and there. Um, I can't. I couldn't argue that it was wholly unreasonable for them to come away with the assumption that. I didn't think Russia was likely to invade Ukraine. Well, because, uh, you know what, I, I featured, you know, uh, in that pre-February period, I was, I did a bu- bunch of, I did a piece with, uh, I interviewed like this Ukraine parliamentarian who was, she was criticizing the U.S. for basically fomenting hysteria. I don't know, that felt like something worth pointing out at the time. Um I still think that whole pre-war period is Nowhere near settled in terms of what actually went on there. But, you know, you get the point. I I feel like I I, I tend to go above and beyond, or at least I consciously strive to go above and beyond in being receptive to criticism. Um, Preferably substantive criticism. On the internet, it's not always substantive. But even if it's not substantive, you know what? Fine, I I can deal with it. I don't know. I feel like I've been on a very narcissistic self justifying rant but there you go
4: well i agree with your point about the social environments about people protecting uh people or doing whatever they think they're doing where they don't allow these criticisms through and they attack people i really don't find that helpful and i'm pretty sure i was blocked by brian Berletic on twitter for making that point even really addressing him wait specifically. what
3: why did he block you exactly
4: I don't know. I mean, I didn't say his name. I just was just saying that people... Uh, I mean, this was back in some Twitter spat between you two, and I just made the point in some thread somewhere that, you know... Which I
0: didn't initiate. I, I, I'm almost positive I wouldn't have initiated that. I was I was roped into the Twitter spaces, and then, you know... Yeah. Uh, my, I, accept, my, I accepted an invitation to appear on the Twitter spaces session going on that day, and, and you know, it just became... Clearly, it, it, it touched a nerve that he was not accustomed to being touched within his yeah. circles.
4: Yeah, so. and uh, I think I was just making the point that the name-calling or the kind of uh, characterizing of certain people is interested in one thing or not another. It's just not helpful. And uh, I Yeah, I think whatever. he
0: was the, he the, calling the, me... Um, he was basically suggesting that I was like a dupe of the American uh, the military industrial complex or something. He was suggesting like, know, a cor- like, like a like sort of a corruption as though I was just a, a stooge of like, you know, the well, American- I think he was saying <laughs> you're
4: like a conduit of their narrative basically in a, in a sense might've been his allegation. I, I'm not exactly sure. Cause I don't remember, but the, I do think that uh, people should be able to criticize each other in substantive ways. And there shouldn't be mobs of, uh, People around them attacking anyone. I mean, it, it, just, it, it just seems like a more productive way. If everyone don't mind, use the internet, then I'm a fan of you. I'm a fan of you, and I'm a fan of Berletic, both. And for me, as a consumer of your work, I get the advantage of having two intelligent people to listen to. And I feel like if more minds connect and criticize each other in a good faith way, that that cluster gets more intelligent as. And more productive. And yeah, it's not uh, the social attacks are not a lubricant to that process.
0: No, and I'm not gonna act like I have a pristine, totally blemish free record in this regard, but I at least try not to get into personal attacks with people. Sometimes, like, you get goaded into it, but I at least, like, have a. I'm like, I, I try to be conscientious to not indulge in that and always bring it back to the substance
4: yeah which is why I mean
0: person. the guy I mean, having a uh, like i, I had I almost had to like enter a Zen state to do the the vosh guy's stream I don't know because why. that I don't know what that guy uh, i don't I'm, I'm gonna say something that will kind of fly in the face of my insistence on trying to maintain <laughs> um, a substantive uh, approach to this sort of thing rather than a personal one, but like i I don't know he he puts his personality front and center to put it mildly um and yeah that, that was wild There's a cartoon but, character on twitch
4: that plays like a socialist that's all it is so.
0: and i don't think it's inherently the case that's angering quote all sides makes you somehow therefore correct um or even necessarily is a testament to your credibility because maybe you're just an asshole right but I do think that the record shows that um, I can generate, let's say, uh, passionate pushback from a wide array of different, you know, political factions or um, supporters of different candidates or ideolo- ideological uh, tendencies. Like, there's no seemingly um, uh, hard and fast, like foe that I'm marshaling myself against. Like I'm not like a Matt Walsh where like every, every day, I'm, you know, just at war with, you know, gender ideology. And that's like basically my entire identity. Um,
2: I'm, trying to, I'm
0: trying to maintain consistent analytical standards to analyze the entire political landscape and to make and should try to have a fidelity to defensible reasoning, hopefully, other good reporting or information at times, and uh, have the integrity and transparency about it where people don't, uh, people should have some degree of confidence that I'm not like, um, you know using double standards or uh, being ob- ob- obsequious, obsequious. I never know how to pronounce that stupid word. Being a sycophant, you know, just that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to have a consistent intellectual approach to what I'm doing and I want to manifest that.
4: Yeah, I think that's pretty evident. Of that's what you do. I mean, I, I mean,
0: you know. should have seen the... Uh, up- or tried to, at least. Yeah. I, I, I was uh, this, just this past week... Um, uh, This is why I I don't get anything done because, like, I don't know. Somebody needs to, like, create a master key of Twitter for me and then just, like, put it in a safe for a while because otherwise I'm in a 48-hour meltdown with with the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. people, and then a day later it's the DeSantis people. You know, it's like uh, a merry-go-round. Well, It's it's because you hate Jews. (laughs) Yeah. The funny thing about that is I... I'm actually a passionate philo-Semite, believe it or not.
4: Well, that's good. I mean, that's a... Uh, I consider myself socially
0: know. and culturally Jewish. Everybody thinks I'm Jewish because of my mannerisms um, and my appearance. <laughs> just opinion. adopted
4: it. They're usually pretty stingy, I think, about getting into the group. Like, you need to go through a process, don't you? It's no, like, they've okay. admitted me. I'm
0: an honorary member of the tribe. Oh, well,
4: there you go. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, um... Moving on from the Tracy topic for just a second. I know
0: we did Yeah, why am I what am I what am I, uh, why am I on the psychologist's uh, couch?
4: Well, I mean that might be Let's talk about of you now. Out of common. Uh, I'd rather not talk about it, <laughs> I would like to talk about just very briefly the Russian uh, thing, the whole point of the false flag you wanted to talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the I, I just was wondering what your reaction overall <laughs> to the Russian reaction was or if you paid attention to it because briefly I, some points I found interesting. Okay. Apparently there's about a 10-hour gap between when the event occurred and when it was first reported in Russia. So that hmm. is interesting in itself that there was, seems to be an wait, wait explain, explain,
0: explain that more. Um, where, where are you getting that from? You mean that – I it, heard this from the Duran.
4: And uh, okay. I was, it was just today where I was listening and they were saying that there was about a 10-hour period bef- between apparently when this event was recorded on video to have happened and to when news first broke Apparently, of it actually. Well, it happened in the middle of the night, right? It happened like two AM. Yeah, it could have, but you know. So people were I just asleep. Of, but I think it was a. Uh, I don't know how long it was, but it seemed like there to me. If the White House got hit with a drone or something, I think that would be breaking news all across media. It would. It's not that people like woke up and you know what I mean. It was reported on apparently later. So, I don't so you know, think it I, was a false flag? No, I didn't say that. I said it, <laughs> it seems like there. Was I thought maybe that wrong. I, I wanted to just you, cut to the chase and see if that's what you were leading up to. No, it's just an interesting fact because if there was a manhunt, which is one of the points they brought up, maybe that explains. There's a lot of possible explanations for why that could be the case, especially maybe in a country it, like Russia.
0: Well, yeah. Well, it, well, first of all, Russia is going to have a more managed information environment than right. the United States. So, yeah. So if they're in damage control mode. Maybe they want to. Yeah,
4: that might indicate yeah, manage sure.
0: what information gets out when. So they're not. They're trying to like limit the panic and limit the right. whatever.
4: Which to me could
0: indicate. Whereas in the U.S., you couldn't. You just couldn't control that.
4: Right. Well, that and that itself might indicate that it's not a false flag that they operated in that way. Whereas if it was a false flag, perhaps they would have wanted the attention out as soon as possible. Anyway, it's just one point. And then the other thing is, I'm hearing a lot of. People that are like Russian podcasters and stuff like that who are very like nonplussed with Putin and the Kremlin in general basically saying, you know, every red line that you've set, they've crossed and you've done nothing. And so the decision making centers haven't been hit. The bridges are standing. The sewage centers are standing. And Chomsky just got all this shit because he said that Russians are – treating uh ukraine better than the u.s treated iraq when we invaded and it seems like that's the russians certainly believe that because they're sitting around going well of course you got hit by a drone like what do you expect
0: well i just and- googled Prigozhin, and one of the things apparently he said today was that these feckless nuclear threats make russia look like quote clowns so that seems like a a theme of some of the consternation.
4: Yeah, and so the idea that they needed to do this to build public support for a fucking strike on the decision making centers is hilarious to me because you've got most of the it's the same thing I said about the sports team. They're sitting there going, "Hey, why aren't you uh, doing the big plays that we had schemed up?" You know, we like we had a scheme for the war, right? And we we did the game plan and we're not doing the big things. Like, why aren't we doing the big That's the sentiment of the Russians right now. So they, also, it, it didn't take a drone strike.
0: Also, why, and look, anything's possible. I'm not going to say it, there's 0% chance that it was a false flag. I don't know. Information could come out. I think it's not particularly likely based on what I've gleaned so far. But, you know, you got to allow for that possibility, I guess. But let's say that there was a desire to do a false flag to, you know, galvanize support for the war or to kind of, you know, be a precursor for some sort of larger mobilization or whatever the reasoning the idea that putin would choose to basically emasculate himself and in a, and facilitate a really striking and extreme and maybe even historically unprecedented symbolic blow to his own prestige
4: literally hitting the flag
0: well, right, and going after him directly, breaching what was supposed to be the most impenetrable airspace in the entire country, showing that Russia's state capacity clearly is not is not as formidable as they might want to have people believe, and that even the presidential executive office or whatever is vulnerable to attacks. I don't know, it just seems like uh they're... Must have been other must be other options for a false flag that you can blow up. <laughs> engineer didn't blow
4: up a car and see if Putin was supposed to be in it. Right. I mean, how hard is that? It, it could be in the woods. It doesn't have to be in the Kremlin.
0: Yeah, it's insane. And, and I mean, because no. like, think of think of the psychic blow too, where it's like the the image of the Red Square, the Kremlin. It's the sort of Emblem of the Russian nation, really, in, in terms of this, the what people associated with in the popular imagination, and if, for for that to then, now be tarnished by images of a drone strike happening, I don't know. It just doesn't. That doesn't seem really consistent with what we know of Putin and his uh, sort of uh, commitment to certain a certain image being projected. Not that I right. can psychoanalyze the guy, but like, you know, he wouldn't want to do something that seems to depreciate the Russian state. If he couldn't, if he, if he could avoid it. it
4: I, so to me, this event left me a little confused because I'm not sure if it's Ukraine or if it's, I, I least think it's the Russians for a lot of the reasons you laid out. I think it's either Ukraine or I don't think this is Russian partisans or any shit like that. I think it's either Ukraine or the CIA. And well, hold on. I, that's just my – I'm not saying I know it. I'm just saying I'm confused by this event, and I'm looking at the motives of who, who would get what out of this, and I'm not sure what to take away from it.
0: Yeah, like, I, I know what you're saying. I think – and I, I've only just begun to realize this as well because when I was in D.C. last week, I spoke to – there was a, one of, there was a Russian guy in D.C., who was, uh, he cited in the media a lot. The name escapes me now because I cannot keep track of Slavic names for the life of me. But uh, he was a former member of the Duma and um, he kind of claims to have all kinds of insights into, into Ukrainian, he basically defected to Ukraine and was fighting Ukraine and whatever. Um, he insisted to me that, like the for the St. Petersburg bombing, the cafe bombing or assassination, that that was Russian partisans, but the thing is, there's not a strictly a strict demarcation between the categories of Russian partisans and Ukraine, right? Because they're working or the, in tandem, or the,
4: or the CIA, I
0: might add. Well, yeah, or potentially the CIA, like right, like so. It's not not one or the other. Like maybe there is some faction of quote Russian partisans. I wouldn't even put it that way, but like I don't know some. You know, uh, paramilitary group, or who knows, that are, have some relationship to some faction of the Ukrainian state, and the Ukrainian state's also a mess. So who knows what factions are in consonance with with which, with what? Um, but I don't know. I, uh, maybe I'm gullible, but I didn't get the impression that the guy was lying. I think maybe he didn't tell the full story, but it did give me. It did uh, sort of. Um, Compel me to give a little more credence to the Russian partisans' angle, but but it, and also being mindful of how that doesn't necessarily uh, distinguish or uh, make distinct Russian partisans as a category that has no overlap with other state actors. I actually think it must have overlap with state yeah, actors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, you can have a patsy or so. You know, correct. You can have a front group. That is ultimately backed by the state, but it's still nonetheless technically a bunch of Russian partisans who they want to be like the public image of it because obviously it's better if people think, or it's like more threatening if it's thought that it's just this really resourceful and lethal group right. of homegrown Russians who are, you know. The the, the coup's right around
4: the corner, basically, right. is the impression it leaves, right?
0: Yeah, so that's what so, they want. Right. But I mean, clearly, I. I, I, the reason why I don't think he gave me the full story is, I think if he had told me the extent of like the Ukrainian Special Forces' involvement as far as, as, far as he knows it, I and mean, I think he's also partially bullshitting, but he knows something, um, then it would have been, you know, blindingly obvious that it was a... If you're going to pick one descriptor, it would be a Ukrainian operation, but you can also give yourself an out, which seems to be what they might be doing if they have nominal russian partisans as the face of whatever the operation is so
4: overall russia's reaction hasn't been like would
0: it be crazy, crazy like does this strike you as crazy like they're in moscow right which is going to be like the more cosmopolitan part of russia compared to like rural areas right i don't know there could be like one percent of people in moscow who have like
4: yeah are involved in weird mean,
0: ideological movements hook up with some ukrainian special forces course, or intelligence unit yeah. yes and then and the they're system. also like good they're also like you know autistic people Autistic uh, computer nerds who can put together a, a drone strike.
4: Yeah, you would think uh, that's definitely possible, but not alone, without, without some connection to, the, to some state, like you said, which is really the important
0: thing. No, I would, I would be incredibly incredulous that any of these operations could be wholly divorced from state actors
4: we are condoning russian strikes on russia yes and the point to me is like what has russia done in response they're not hitting any of the places that Zelensky's supposed to be and they're not doing like a symmetrical response or whatever this escalation they're not doing it and it it makes me think well okay they're still not giving ukraine jets or long-range missiles and they're still not budging on that for whatever reason but they're allowing strikes in russia the whole thing seems a little confused, but to me, I I don't see how this leads to a Ukrainian victory. This is like a, it seems like just a poorly managed dog on a leaf that the, it, it keeps getting out, you know, running around the yard and terrorizing neighbors and the owners just not doing anything about it and saying, well, you know, this is just how it is. And, it, <laughs> but how does that lead to Ukrainian victory? It just leads to more desperation. And, you know.
0: Well, you got to realize. Hold on, you got to realize. And actually, I'll uh, this. This is part of the uh, article I'm writing, But there was this conglomeration of U- these Ukrainian civil society groups, which the U.S. you know funds through different instruments, who put out an open letter. I think it was in March, basically calling on. The US, uh, in terms of Congress, and everybody the world over, but it was sort of directed at the US to endorse as the only true means by which victory can be secured for Ukraine is to impose regime change in Russia. Yeah, so. Um, and this is the mainstream of the main. These are not, for, you know, these are mainstream representatives of, quote, Ukraine civil society. And those are the people who are basically running the show in the country. Very, you know, uh, interconnected with the government. You know, they come back and forth. It's like a revolving door type thing. Defense sector also funded. You know, it's a whole sort of web That's of you know. That's the but, goal. yeah. Wow. And 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 so um, when you say you don't know how it would lead to a Ukrainian victory, you got to understand they don't think that victory. You know, you might. Listen to like a pundit somewhere saying oh it 's got to be the ninety one lines restored um, no they they think that 's only forestalling the problem for them and it 's got to have they have to uproot the Russian imperial aggression right. at the as you know at the foundation as they see it. And and that's that's a true belief. And and, and, and it's not as though there's like a, there's not like, they don't have like, there's not like an executable plan to like forcibly bring that about at this very moment, but it almost doesn't really matter because like there wasn't an executable plan in Vietnam, right? I mean, they're, they're in, if you're ineluctably heading in one, in the direction of only, uh, the only conceivable objective, then even if you can't, say how you're going to get from point A to point B, you're still heading in the direction of point A, point B, right? And so I think that's that's a way of putting it. So it's a lot of, so it's, 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 your confusion I think is emblematic of the confusion of the strategy, which is why it's just kind of a, it's just like steering a vessel in one direction, pointing at the island you're heading toward and hoping you'll, you'll get there at some point. Yeah, but it's, it's,
4: it's to say that it's necessary to get rid of Putin, whether that's... That's what through, they think. Yeah, to, I know that. I'm saying that, that's, that even if it's killing him, disposing him, however, whatever, that can't be... It's necessary to win the war. It's part of it, but it's not sufficient to win the war. So what if Putin dies, and let's just say Purgosian retires from PMC Wagner, making this all up, and he becomes president in an emergency election, and now... Now we're back to square one. Like, you have to get them out of the country. Well, you no, know? is this like not a thing that exists? Like so, if they take out Putin, but the Russians are still in the country, that's a win. They said they want to go to the they want to retake Crimea. So well, if, the, if you just sit here saying, well, we're going to kill Putin, and that's the victory condition. Well, that, that's th- insane.
0: Well, here's the thing, and this is part of what I was observing in D.C. last week. There's a, there's a debate, of course, it's you know, the U.S. think tanks are hosting these debates because why would that not be the venue? Um, there's total unanimity as to the utter necessity of, of course, achieving military victory in Ukraine, overthrowing Putin and the senior Russian leadership, but the debate between... The two the different sides around how to uh, bring about this sort of ultimate Russia extirpating victory is to what extent do you uh, basically just remove the personnel who are in power now and put in better personnel? That's associated. That's the view associated with like Navalny. Navalny is not advocating for a total dissolution of the Russian Federation as a state entity. Um. However, there are others who are trying to now mainstream this idea that there should be external um, encouragement of individual Russian uh, no, uh, constituent states of the Russian Federation. So, like uh, Dagarstan, Tartarstan, these other you know aspiring statelets, potentially that people, most people don't even know exist. And aren't even really cohesive political entities, so it's like it's a ridiculously far-fetched idea. But what they want to do is devise a strategy to dissolve the Russian Federation itself, so that the government, the governmental structure that underpins a Putin or whatever, you couldn't just put somebody else in there. And um, so, you know, uh, the and Soviet like, uh, and like, even Clause. Gary Kasparov, right? Gary Kasparov yeah, is part who's, of this, right? Well, yeah, he's probably more of a even a moderate. Believe it or not, and that guy's hardcore on this. And his his view, and also uh, Karkovsky, the exiled uh, oligarch, their view is um, we can't have a czar anymore, and this, uh, so we have to get over this idea of valorizing the good czar. So forget the nostalgia for Gorbachev. It's gotta you have to uproot the system itself because until you sort of. Again, extirpate the Russian imperial instinct um, by by terminating its manifestation in terms of its current state uh, existence. Then it's going to continue to be this menace, and so the idea now is to, um, it's, to it's to force uh, Russia to become a smaller Russia. Russia as such. So, like, the ethnic Russian population around Moscow, whatever, to become a a, um, a, a smaller, constrained Russian uh, nation-state and the Russian Federation's gone. I mean, look, it's crazy. It's long-term. It's crazy. Yeah. But, like, that's what they're pursuing.
4: Okay, but that, fine. Let them... The, have fun, guys. Because, meanwhile, there are Ukrainian men dying in the trenches every day. Every day. And so they expect the Ukrainian military to go on a counteroffensive. that I'm hearing more and more Ukrainians, ex-military generals, say, we're not ready for this, blah, blah, blah. They're going... <laughs> they're delaying it. But they're going to do it eventually, apparently. And after that, they're going to have not that much more coming to them until we assign more money for this. And so then, what, they just hold out until Russia dissolves in 10 years or 5 years? Like, this is so insane that it, it's clearly it's a it's a nice idea but like when you this is what i mean about meeting reality is like if you take if the goal in the ukrainian war is to take back the territory which it is they say they want to go take crimea all the way back to the borders in 91 or whatever so they you have to be able to do that physically with the military so if that is going to happen you need to get rid of the russian military and if the plan is to dissolve russia that's insane that's absolutely insane have fun doing that because it's going to, you know, like the, literally you're
0: wasting. Well, Kasparov time. wants a technocratic council to be installed, right. presumably with him as a member. And yeah, remove the existing Russian state apparatus. He actually has this idea of thing. like a, pu- I forget the word now, it's like purification but more sinister, where it's actually a, uh, it's like, you know, it's like a de Russification, it's like de yeah, in Germany but de-Russification in Russia because they're also saying that it's overdue for the crimes of Stalin and so forth. Um,
4: And Russians are going to do this to themselves because we're not... No, it's
0: going to be imposed... Well, no, it's going to be that... They're not going to do it to themselves. It's going to be imposed on them. By who? By... uh, I mean, I'm not the spokesperson for this gambit that's so why
4: I'm I, so that's why I'm saying this is so insane it's like they they're expecting
0: well i mean the the so i mean the, how did the soviet union dissolve right obviously it was, it, dissol- was it, dissolved, it dissolved it dissolved formally when they literally forged an agreement to dissolve the soviet union in uh minsk i think it or i think it was minsk or, i think it was in belarus actually but um like a treaty right but the us clearly was exerting certain is. kinds of coercive power to bring about that outcome that they sought. Sure, um, so, like, it's not, but, when you say who's going to do it, well, I mean, there are, there's a whole spectrum of ways in which pressure can be imparted to try to engineer really- a certain outcome
4: the russian people had to go along with it the russian leadership had to go
0: along with it to some with the free. dissolution no they did what the soviet
4: the dissolution of the soviet union
0: a lot of was... people didn't no i, I mean actually you look soviet, at it, soviet, the, who a who lot are, of people did not, a lot of ordinary russians were deep, okay. were, were, were you know, violently opposed to dissolving the soviet union uh-huh. they kind of did it as a cabal in the dead of night that 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 was not right to say
4: the people i'm saying the leadership they would the, the enforcement mechanism came from the top, correct, of Russia? They didn't have yes. a military coming in. So that's what it would take, is what I'm saying. They'd have to have Russia do it to themselves again in the same kind of style you're saying. And well, they'd they well, do it in the middle of a war on their border where that would be a, a total defeat. I mean, that would be like Weimar Germany levels of defeat, like complete ruin. That would be worse than the fall of the Soviet Union because at least they retained some kind of autonomy in some degree. Th- this is like this would be so dramatic that it would be a literal outside rule imposed on all of Russia while they fight this war. I just don't see it happening. And well, th- if I, the plan I, is so to keep sure. fighting a war indefinitely to, until that it, it comes to be, then it really is going to be down to the last Ukrainian it, because they're going to run out of men before that happens. I, I just don't see a world where that happens. Maybe, maybe that's completely wrong, but I, well, I
0: I mean, think of it this way. Try to put yourself in the shoes of somebody whose conception of what was possible in the world never included the faintest notion that the Soviet Union could cease to exist. Like, it was never something that there was even... It's like uh, a fish thinking that water wouldn't exist, right? Um, And think of then... The Soviet Union ceasing to exist and it actually the dissolution actually being substantially more peaceable than the worst case scenario would have been. I don't know that I would be overconfident about presuming that it has to be this like ultimately ultimate ultimately catastrophic scenario for, like, the Russian Federation to dissolve. And the Russian Federation's only been around since 91. Um, I'm, and to be clear, as I'm sure you... I don't have to explain to you, I'm not advocating for this. I'm trying to get inside the heads of, like, the people who are comprising the client state that is supposedly calling the shots strategically now and who, whose interests are being increasingly supported through and a battery of different policy measures, I think people underappreciate the significance of these tribunals that are in the offing, the ICC thing. ICC thing was significant, not so much for the charge itself, but for the maneuvering that the U.S. undertook to involve itself in that process, specifically for the purpose of ultimately bringing some kind of, Prosecutorial action against Putin. Um, I think you know that's a that wasn't just symbolic. I don't think. Otherwise, think it, why, otherwise, why would yeah. the why would they be engaged in all these intensive legislative and administrative machinations to allow for the Justice Department and the State Department and other entities to interface at different levels with these international arrangements? I mean.
4: Oh, I don't think it's symbolic. When people
0: say they want, when, when, when like, we listen to uh, a uh, listen to somebody from the Baltic states, or somebody from Poland, or even somebody from Finland, you know, talk about the utter, uh, utter necessity and utter uncompromising necessity of a new instantiation of a Nuremberg tribunal. They're not kidding around. They're pursuing that, like it's not figurative language. But so that, remember when we talked about taking people at their word? Yeah, I don't see any reason not to take them at their word. That's
4: fine, but again, what is the actual impact of that if they can't enforce it? And that what I—it's not that it has no impact. It's not that it's just words. Then I agree, it's not totally symbolic. I think it's cleaving the world. I think this this war is cleaving the world into. A Western and a rest of the world perspective. And it's back to the a, a Cold War. We're in a new Cold War, where it may be a hot war with China. But this is clearly two blocks in the East that are going to be pitted against the West. And everybody's going to have to choose a side again and get get in line. And that's what's happening right now. And that's why there's interfacing with legal systems. And that's why there's sanctions. And that's why there's suppression of media. And that's why there's all this stuff going on. It's because we're cleaving the world into two, whether that's the intended consequence or not. That's the actual effect when you have to, uh, you know, when you're you're doing these things, that's the actual effect. Because you you can say it's not the goal or whatever, but look at the mechanisms that are going into effect, and that's what's happening. So that's, it's not symbolic.
0: Here's how my perspective on this could be, countered or shown to be deficient or flawed in some fashion, show me any evidence anywhere that the sort of Leviathan of the American state, which obviously also includes its sphere of influence via NATO, via these other legal formations, EU and so forth, but it's all, you know, it all revolves around the U.S. Show me any evidence that there's a departure happening from the trajectory that I'm spelling out. Like, what people ask me the end game all the time. Clarify right? the trajectory that cause... toward the at toward regime change as the aspiration. In well, it Russia. is the
4: aspiration. That's not something that's debatable. It is the aspiration. It's just denied by well people parties. deny but it. Well people deny all kinds of things that's i'm not countering that i'm not saying that i'm saying that the practical effect that this is having by being hellbent on this path that I agree is the goal is a cleaving of the world into two uh, we're in a new cold war that's the actual effect
0: yeah I don't even think of it as I, I almost think of a cold, a cold war is even it's, it's it's kind of the wrong paradigm because i don't view the Cold War from you know nineteen forty five to nineteen ninety one as really meaningfully analogy. I almost think it's a bit of a misleading analogy. So I almost would prefer like a different term or something because there's a hot war going on in Europe right now. I mean, you, you we were just we just established right that the U S. How about a it a- bears operational and political and strategic culpability for what was just a drone strike on the Kremlin. Like I don't. What's cold about that? Uh, it's a. It's going to be a
4: multipolar world then. And There's and there a, and on Taiwan,
0: works. on Taiwan, at least at least ahead of the Ukraine intervention, right? Biden did say no boots on the ground. Of course, that's not a reliable assurance. But they're not even giving that pretense with Taiwan. I think I talked about this last week. But even among like the different schools of thought in D.C. as to how much. Taiwan should be prioritized relative to other theaters in terms of preparing for some sort of conflict. There's no disagreement, as far as I can tell, as to it already being preordained that the U.S. has a military will militarily engage, go to war, in effect, with China in the event of some sort of incursion in Taiwan. Like, that's not even there. Extricating that from the the realm of debatability, so it's more like decisively, it's like a more decisive commitment than was expressed in the run up to this Ukraine war, and the the commitment to Ukraine is pretty robust. So, So
4: but we're not at war. With China and we're not at war with Russia I think we no. can safely say that and yet we're not at Cold War somehow because it's also hot in the sense that the Kremlin has just been targeted so what is the term then because if we were at war we would know it and I, I'll tell you this right now if, if we go to war with China I'm not gonna be on calling I, mean,
0: so. <laughs> I don't know if we if we are if we were at war would we know it I mean this has been a debate throughout the ages in terms of like historiography but you know, so uh, be- the, the the I I the US was effectively at war in World War II well before the official declaration of war because there's all these precursors phases of warfare that aren't as front and center in the public consciousness right I don't know I think I think there's there's clearly interstate warfare of a kind happening now do you want to put that as we're at war I don't know that may be over dramatic but I also I'm not sure that to say flatly we're not at war is accurate either.
4: We're not in a conventional military combat yet, but that's about as specific as you can get. I mean, when people think, are you at war, I think they get a different picture, but there's an escalation here that does involve military combat, so it's... It's rather confusing, yeah. In the sense that there's no real. By the way, didn't Russia down term. a
0: didn't Russia down a U.S. drone in the Black Sea? I mean, there's like enough even kinetic stuff going on that would seem to like cross a certain threshold where it couldn't just be seen no. as strictly cold.
4: I think the appropriate term is controlled chaos, and you know, everyone can debate yeah. on how controlled it is, right? And uh, no, I think that's right. That's, that might be a good way of putting it. But the, the problem is that doesn't actually describe a state of relations. Like, with, I don't know if there is a geopolitical term for this, but there to me, the end result of what's going on as a whole with U.S. foreign politics, uh, geopolitics right now, is a cleaving of the world based on this Ukraine Russia war and tying in China for other reasons. That's what's going on. And it, there is no reverse gear. So, no, there isn't. what does that lead to? if it leads to conventional military war, obviously that's uh, that's what I mean about that's, at, at that point, do Americans have any sense of sovereignty left? When when we talk about American interests, that's always like, the, the biggest insult of all of this is that this is ostensibly done in the name of American interests, but who, name me an American, that a real American, that's not one of these think tankers that I would take their citizenship away if I could, some of these pro war people they they're not going to be fighting the war necessarily but the americans that would be sent off to die how is that in their interest because of microchips in a process well, no, where, I've asked, I've American asked that interest.
0: question almost verbatim to people because you'll see this is more a conservative inflected kind of tendency but you'll you'll see them you'll see people say something along the lines of Clearly we need to ensure that China obviously we need to ensure that China does not overtake us as global hegemon because that would be a disaster given our different standards on speech and government authority and commingling between the public and private whatever their beefs are with the so-called CCP versus the liberal democracy of the U.S. slash West, um, and so they'll say, "Of course, if that requires going to war, then so be it." Or, but yeah, these are- or maybe to, 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 to rephrase. They they make an argument for the inevitability and necessity of war, but they don't. They some often don't explicitly state that war is the method by which to achieve what they're saying that they needs to be achieved. So what I've done at times is press them with more specificity and put the question to them in the sense of, wait, so you're just taking it as a given that it's in the interest of every American to go to war with China? Like I'm not really intuitively comprehending why you're so confident that it would be in the interest of me or you or Joe Schmo, for the U.S. to be in a global cataclysm. Like, can you spell out that a little more? And they haven't really been been requested to spell it out. I find. And then, like, once they kind of like start apprehending more the implications of the crazed, you know, nonsense that they're espou- espousing, but never really examined. You, you make some inroads, or at least that's been my experience. It seems like their
4: mentality is the same kind of mentality about why we nuked Japan. We kill a million people so we don't have 10 million killed or something along those lines. But this whole presupposition of the the toll it would take if we lost our hegemony to China in some kind of way is, to me, so obviously murky compared to, I don't know, nuclear conflagration.
0: Another way to approach it is, and this is a, a slightly different dimension, but related in an important way. And I had this exact exchange with this woman from the, the Hudson Institute. God, I'm, I'm, I, I, I tend to want to refrain from aggressive military force, but if there was any place that I wanted, needed to, I, I could have like the a free choice to bomb. <laughs> I shouldn't finish the sentence. Um, uh, she... Ask these people who are always banging on about deterrence. Ask them a very simple question. Is this deterrence agenda that you're promoting, and I say agenda not in the abstract sense, literal, if they have a policy agenda that is predicated on this notion of deterrence, meaning deter China allegedly, from invading Taiwan, by militarizing Taiwan, accelerating the militarization, joint drills, more troops, uh, deployment of U.S. naval assets in the entire vicinity, bolster Japan, bolster Philippines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ask them, so if I wanted to go about falsifying your deterrence proposal like how would I be able is it possible for me to prove that you're incorrect is 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 there any falsifiability available to me as relates to your theory because if, if there isn't that means it's a dogma that means it's basically divinely inspired and you know in a different way Realm that transcends you're, rational, you're reading, rational, you're rationality. You're
4: reading the auspices at that point. You're reading birds flying into the sky telling us this is inevitable
0: because of the cosmos. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, they'll probably be a bit too embarrassed to concede that it's not fault that their theories aren't falsifiable, but they in effect admit that. This woman at the Hudson Institute in effect admitted that to me. And you could tell that she was not accustomed to having that line of question to put to her because why Nobody's would she? She's always that. soirees. Yeah, she's always in soirées with other quote security studies professionals, which is like the, another bullshit. Uh, I mean, yeah, with Malcolm Nance. It's amazing. It's amazing the the, it's amazing the, the m- like millions of different like I, like all the ice cream flavors in the world that you can imagine, but flavors of bullshit like sinecures that they invent for themselves and like quasi academic institutions. It's like, it's, it's amazing. If you, I, that's why I told you to take a, I recommended taking a field trip to to DC at some point, just so you could like understand that it's a real thing. Um, but so somebody who's affiliated with a, with a think tank and is thus invested professionally in not clowning themselves by being forced to acknowledge that their theory is f- fundamentally unfalsifiable and therefore just a strand of religious dogma, um, they're probably not going to budge, but you, I think you're going to get... You, uh, people who are fair-minded and who are observing that exchange and don't have, like, some sort of personal or professional or psychic or political investment in the perpetuation of, like, the Hudson Institute's uh, fin- relationship to the defense industry... I think you're going to you, – there'll be – you'll sort of raise consciousness to some extent as to the just utter – like the underlying conceptual inanity of what's being proposed here. Because like I even hope. with even with Ukraine, the same woman. Her name is Rebecca Heinrichs. Look her up. Even with Ukraine, right, she'll say that – oh, it wasn't that deterrence, quote-unquote, was falsified – or proven wrong, or proven uh, kind of conceptually invalid, given how the facts.
4: Bore Let me out. guess. Let She'll me say guess. Biden evidence.
0: didn't Biden didn't deter hard enough. Right,
4: evidence to the contrary. Right, it's evidence yeah. to the contrary. It actually proves their theory.
0: Right, it's right. It's when it's like when the rapture doesn't come. You look you look deeper into like the book of Revelation, and you find another passage that tells you that, oh, if you just tweak that, then, you, then you're deterring. Well, it's just like, okay, every single thing that was done under Trump, uh, Obama, Biden, Trump and Biden in Ukraine post 2014, and then up to February 2022 was in the name of this deterrence dogma. It, they actually use that in their internal literature. That's in the Pentagon documentation, um, and it, it didn't deter. So, so, so what, then you're saying if it fails, then you just got to deter more. What is well,
4: the actual conclusion? Is that the conclusion then that they? What is the hard conclu-
0: should there be is conclusion? There is none. It's not. It's not a coherent. So, it, it's because, not a coherent like
4: uh, yeah. thought paradigm. The logical procession there is that we should have just had NATO and Ukraine actually militarily in the first place. So, or that we should have struck
0: Russia before well, yeah.
4: like Israel does.
0: That's the lesson. Well, I mean, Vosh, that's the lesson. Vosh told me that he, like, I was, I don't know if you listen, don't listen to it if you haven't, but if you no. did, there was a point where he was, I was asking him, so are you saying that Barack Obama was this despicable appeaser? Because you're now saying that his position post 2014 is like the. Sum of all evil. Whereas John McCain's position that McCain was criticizing Obama at the time for not abiding—that's the morally righteous position. And obviously, that's an awkward way of framing it for him because I don't think he has thought about the subject in enough depth to recognize that that would be the quandary. Um, What, but he did like tentatively admit that, like, he's like, oh yeah. Obama should have done more, but, like, uh, he didn't, like, fully concede. But, like, no, they're saying, yeah, there should have been, like, some sort of preemptive action. I I don't know. They think, like, uh, the U.S. should have invaded Crimea now or something. And and, and, and how dare us for not having learned the lessons of Neville Chamberlain? Maybe we need to preemptively sink
4: the uh, Chinese Navy with some submarines, right? Like, that's literally where the logic leads is we weren't prepared here, so we have to do something more aggressive next time, which is China— And they're saying they have to do it soon because if we don't do it soon, we're going to not have the military capability. Oh, by the way,
0: I know people don't tend to read the National Defense Authorization Act for recreational purposes, but I'm like a demented person. So I read it. And it's not just that they're doing something analogous in Taiwan as they had done with Ukraine. The same authorities are being invoked. Like, they're they're, they're creating this crossover sort of policy connection between Taiwan and Ukraine, where they're, like, tied together as to how resources are being deployed. Presidential drawdown authority is how Biden has deployed the lion's share of the weaponry to Ukraine. Well, did you know that – can you guess what the only other country now that's eligible for presidential drawdown authority is? Well, yeah, obviously Taiwan, right, yeah. It's, well, yeah, so, so there's like a tangibility to this that I feel regretful even now, and I'm not saying we're past the point of return, but I feel like I need to stop fighting with people on Twitter and actually be more scrupulous about laying this out in a kind of systematic way so people, at least there's a, I'm contributing what I can to sort of making this point in a, in a con- clear an understandable way for people who don't, maybe don't appreciate well, uh, how quickly things are progressing.
4: I appreciate your work on that, and uh, you know, maybe if you ever get to debate RFK Jr. or interview him or whatever, because I think that would be good. He should. Yeah, I would. Oh, I, I, I feel. You know, I do. As far as any presidential candidate goes, I know this may annoy you, but I support him. I'm not doing anything
0: right now, but yeah, I don't just, care. It, I, doesn't, they, it doesn't annoy me that you support him. It's it's fine. Well, I just I, I feel I'll, like I feel like his whole. I don't want to get into it. I just feel like his whole thing is just inherently condescending and patronizing. And I'm I'm being beckoned by people all over the place, including in private, to, like, recognize how amazing his tweets are. No, he's tapping in to a constituency that's, yes, underserved. I get it. I don't – it's not plausible that he had this existentially seismic political epiphany at age 70. Okay, but isn't it good that he's raising these? Po- like, if he can I don't, get,
4: I are not so. going to Have a debate. So is he just like the bad, rep, a, re, a bad representative? Then for the the message? I don't know. Like, let it, him my, do what he my, wants. My basic, my basic thing is that we should have people. What I see you is doing is trying to make people aware that we're headed to a potential military conflict and trying to get them to at least be able to appreciate whether or not they think this is a good thing or not. And we should show the the, the entire. Uh, Gist of your work seems to be to elevate that consciousness
3: on this one.
0: Yeah, and I mean, a lot of I'm not gonna, you know, people can run, it's fine. Actually, I don't care if he runs, say well, he is running, state. he is running, and what state. he what he shows and what the vet shows, and even with what like the 25 people who ran in the Democratic primaries in 2020 show, is that it really makes a, a lot of sense from just a self interested standpoint. For people who are like at all like politically entrepreneurial, to just you know run for president, come what may, because like there's hardly any downside. I mean, well, I don't course. think Vivek thinks he's going to defeat Donald Trump for the nomination, but like clearly okay. he's reaping dividends from being a, a, a nom- you know being a technical presidential candidate. I don't see why more people don't do it. Um, well, I'm sure
4: that it will be. I think they will as time goes on. I, I, but I just but the
0: thing that...
4: is, like,
0: with our, I, I don't, I, I don't want to get derailed on this. Well, maybe we can have a different discussion, uh, sure. another discussion about it. But like, I, look at his 2018 book. If you ever get a chance, I haven't read the whole thing. I've read the pertinent sections. It's this dy- dynastic rehabilitation crusade that he's on to just totally, you know, m- uh, distort. History for the purpose of imbuing himself as the standard bearer of the Kennedy um, uh, peacenik legacy. It's just, I mean, please read that. First, if you haven't, and I tweeted about this recently, read the Seymour Horst book on the Kennedys, okay? Then compare that to the RFK Jr. book where he's trying to elevate the Kennedys as this, you know, uh, glorious... You know. Anyway, I don't want to get to because I don't have. I, I need to develop the thoughts further. But there's there's a, there's like an inherent dissonance in this whole uh, conceit that uh, is being uh, is being put out. And the other th- problem I have is, okay, so you know, Dennis Kucinich, Tulsi Gabbard have they have they're not perfect people, politicians, political figures. But they had actual records. They put skin in the game. They had, like, Tulsi took genuine political risks for her principles because she was in elected office. Kassin did the same thing. Ron Paul, to some extent. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has no record on anything except, you know, having a, this... Uh, I don't want to get into it. It's just like, I, I, don't, I don't like the, the easy parallels that people drew, draw, and and then the, I'm I'm I get lectured to say oh well just look at what his stated policy positions are, well I mean well that's not really maybe the most important thing to look at if the guy has no record, you could just fashion an entirely new policy agenda at, at the drop of a hat, and because you had nothing yeah like Trump yeah like Trump, um,
4: I'm not even saying I support him for president as much as I am saying I want to see him. I know this isn't going to happen, and but I would like to see him somehow debate or get into the media space of the Democrats and bring up these points because that's like imagine being
0: lectured it. in 2016, like sit down and read whatever like the policy statements were on Donald Trump's website, like what a useless exercise. Like that's not right. what you need to do to like get any kind of useful understanding of what his political significance was.
4: No. And I don't think, I don't think RFK's got any chance of being the nominee. That's not possible. I don't think. And even if he was, the whole thing is that I don't even care about thinking what he would do as president or what he would do in opposition to his stated policies because he's literally only useful to me as a, in my perspective, as a media tool. Whereas or, or like a cultural tool, whereas Tulsi Gabbard, I really actually would have liked to see as president personally. Yeah. And that that's the difference to me. And the, what it speaks to in terms of his popularity is in a way like with Trump, where he's just kind of representing, like you said, this underserved constituency. And uh, no one's going to say anything like this about uh, Ukraine in the democratic sphere. And, you know, they, they're going to just spend all the time saying – He's not a real Kennedy, you know. He's not a real Democrat. But he's not running in the Republican primary, you know what I mean? He's going to be not in a real sphere. Well, they're saying, you know, because his family doesn't support him. He's not like... Oh. He, they're basically saying that they believe in that. Right, and this, and is, this is also
0: what annoys me. This is what also annoys me. Part of the whole logic that he's presenting for why he's running is as a standard bearer of the Kennedy dynasty. It is. He makes it... Part of the whole deal, and how could he not? No one would know who the, he was if not for his, yeah, of course, lineage. He, he, he can't control the circumstances of, of your birth, but that's just who he is. Well, he's not. And really so now, and now, now we're being uh, sort of in, in, ensconced into this like ridiculous dynastic familial drama where that got kind of weirdly revitalized by people who, like, I don't have this online conspiracy understanding of the of john f kennedy i mean i know that he was assassinated okay like don't have to remind me of that but like i don't know i he, he there's this weird like mythical thing that is just facile that i feel like rfk jr then tries to uh tap into and i don't know i i also think that there's like weird crossover with The Q people thinking John F. Kennedy Jr. was alive. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the main facet of the campaign, but there's this weird cultish sort of mysticism going on that I can't quite put my finger on. And it's like a neo-dynastic reverence thing. And it's just – it rubs me the wrong way, I guess, is what I have to say.
4: Did you listen to his announcement speech? Because I got a vibe a little bit like that where it was very optimistic in his – like. His sense of like how we're going to revitalize the country away from partisanship, and he was, you know, it even kind of I, I didn't believe it, but it wooed me a little. Like, I could feel the emotional strings being pulled, even though cognitively I know it's bullshit.
0: yeah. And it's I like mean, Tulsi, would, Tulsi would talk about that kind of stuff, yeah. Kucinich even does that. it, Obama he does it. it, John McCain does it. Actually, every politician does it, but he does, you know, it's Kennedy a nice thought to, to think that we can get beyond our right. partisan differences and, and you know unite around a shared American... Value. I mean, you know, it's just a general sort of appeal to common humanity that how could you really object yeah. to? I don't. My, my thing is, people, people say, oh, he's bringing so much to the table. I don't know. It didn't take me long to put together a thread that people melted down over where I just resurfaced some stuff that he did, like, between 2018 and 2020, like, not ancient oh, yeah. history, where he's writing op-eds saying... Donald Trump has forfeited America's standing in the world by kowtowing to authoritarian tyrants, such as China, Russia, and North Korea. And we got to get back to the days of my, my dear old uh, uncle, Jack, when America was respected around the world. Cause we have to make sure we promote democracy all over the place. That's what he said yeah, in he was... an op-ed in 2018. So like, how, yeah. you know, is that, you know, so fair. it's not I, like, I didn't sift through his high school term papers.
4: Right. No, it shows to me that he was speaking the party line at that point for sure. And
0: what—that's and, and I mean, not denying That I, I feel like that's more fruitful of a thing to make extrapolations from than him algorithmically tailoring his tweets to what he knows is going to, you know, right. take well, off.
4: Ta- yeah. If you're talking about what he would do if he got in power, I, I don't.
0: I mean, that's not even really what I'm thinking about because it's almost re- it's irrelevant at this Are point. You just... His effect on the. Discourse then is just to more, like, him as a political what is it what is he doing at the moment? that's what I'm looking at like you no know, well, I don't know
4: yeah it's his motive. And, and
0: I mean American presidential cycles are so ridiculously protracted anyway that like thinking of campaign developments in terms of like what are they gonna do like exclusively in terms of like what would they do in two years if they actually occupy the presidency it's like you know. Uh, it's premature, like there's a whole all of these phases of how to. I don't know, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I, I actually, uh, I gotta go now. I, uh, yeah. yeah, I spoke to you for a demented. No, no, it's perfect. Exactly. It uh, actually, uh, Mo, I do want to say hello to Mauricio. Uh, yeah. let this, me go. or because I know, yeah, all right, thanks. Senior. Hey, uh, Mauricio, if you're there, sorry to leave you waiting for so long.
3: No, I didn't even know I was on.
0: Oh, Oh, you weren't looking to call? Okay, no problem.
3: No, no, that's fine. I mean, this is kind of cool. I was <laughs> talking. No I pressure. Was, you
0: don't have to talk to me. I I wouldn't appreciate being coerced into talking to myself. So,
3: No, I mean, there was so much I actually wanted to say, but I think I'm <laughs> <Okay>. kind of <laughs> stunned. But, you know, I just do want to point out one aspect about an earlier conversation. You had talked about the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And then how we have, like, a hot war now in Europe but like, throughout the whole 70s and 80s. been No, that's right. Cold war. The world was in flames, right? Africa was in flames. Central America was in flames. Uh, yeah, Latin America as well. And uh, it's uh we were kind of not affected by that Cold War, but like half of the world is. And now it just right. seems like in this new ideation of this Cold War 2.0, that war that the rest of the world felt is actually getting close off to home. And so it's something that we're thinking about yeah, I, I, I guess you
0: know my the reason why I was kind of searching for some other term that could best encapsulate whatever this current conflict is versus what we think of as the Cold War is that it does strike me as there being significantly more direct state-on-state con- uh, warfare between no, the totally. two nuclear powers – then there had the, been between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Obviously, there was violence everywhere and proxy battles and so forth. But there's like a particularly acute confrontation going on right now that would not have been recognizable as a feasible possibility during the, you know, the traditional Cold War that we think of.
3: Exactly. I mean, I remember I was in an international relations class. Um, And I'm having this discussion with the professor and I was kind of arguing that point is like, hey, you know, this Cold War, it's actually pretty bad for the rest of the world. And then the professor had stated at the time, I didn't really agree with it then, but now I'm starting to really give it consideration. He's like, yeah, that's bad, right? For these third world proxies, all these proxies wars in the third world. It's bad for the people there. But if the two big superpowers get in a hot conflict, then that's bad for the rest of the world. And I always thought that was kind of like you know elitist and one sided. Was this recent? But like, uh, no, this was like in the early two thousands. Oh, okay, God, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah. So just learning about geopolitics and the, uh, the Cold War time. So it was like now I understand how that. It's kind of like Marshall and Heimer, you know. Like I, during that period, I hated the realists. I always because mm-hmm. they're the ones who were always justifying like the uh, Dirty Wars in uh, Nicaragua and El Salvador. Yeah, and, Kissinger. Uh, the whole, yeah, Kissinger, like, to me, those were the realists. But so now to find myself that... But I was Mearsheimer
0: justifying, like, uh,
3: I know, I U.S. Don't know. intervention I mean, in El Salvador that, and stuff? I don't know, but I know he claims the realist flag, and to me, I always associated that. Um, if you I'm not now, sure know, if that would actually describe Mearsheimer. It
0: would describe Kissinger, for correct. sure. Correct.
3: Right, right. Yeah. The, oh, the realist philosophy. You know, and yeah. I know Mearsheimer claims that. So... Yeah. That's why I associate it, but I actually don't know what he supported during that time, but is but like I'm saying it's just to actually have to support that like I think is the fact that they're so far the world is so far past that that's what's scary is that so now the realists are making sense, you know right. what I mean I never thought I would have, like agree with Tucker Carlson and now he's saying things about free speech and, and what's happening like oh yeah now i I have to agree with this person, so it's like that's how crazy the world is happening I know what
0: you mean I think. I don't tend to be especially attached to any of these labels. They're oversimplistic, simplistic and they, they're not really analytically really. useful. But leaving that aside, to the extent that realism, broadly construed, is a counterweight to like heavily ideologically infused conceptions of the global order and how idealism. U.S. foreign policy ought to—yeah, it's a, it's an idealism of a kind that I do think. I maybe like you spent a good portion of my life not like appreciating the dangers of, yeah. like when Glenn Beck would go on rants about how Woodrow Wilson was the most evil person to ever have walked the earth, seemed a little my bit hope. overwrought to me. Maybe still is, but like there's a kernel of truth there in that he was. Introducing this level of zeal to the conduct of the affairs of state that really kind of uh, detached it from just a basic kind of rational assessment of the empirical reality, that realism can be used as a remedy to like bring back down onto earth um, at times. Like, not that. And I don't think, really, I just think about it more of a, this might sound pompous, but I don't even think of it so much as realism from my perspective as like empiricism. Let's just like try to not be ideologically blinkered in our just factual assessments of what's happening. That's the starting point. And you would think that would be like a uh, universally agreed upon starting point because it shouldn't be controversial, and yet it is. So well, That's
3: the real danger, is because I think if the realists will eventually come to a realization like, this policy is bad, we need to stop. Well, the idealists right. will, I think, push you over that nuclear threshold. And I think that's what's the most scary thing right now, is, that, like, everything you've talked about is really interesting, um, and I'm still trying to learn about that false flag, oh, I mean, not that they attack on the Kremlin, I just heard mm. about that uh, usually when I hear news like that, I try not to listen to about 15 hours and then try to see what's going on. But
0: Yeah, good rule of I thumb. Think like, it's like when there's like, a mass shooting.
3: Right, exactly. But I think right now is like the idea of like inching closer to a nuclear possibility is scaringly true. That reminds me of what my professor said, is like when the two powers get together, that's bad for the whole world, because that's a nuclear war. And I think that danger is escalating. More than anything, right now, and that hasn't really been like people's perceptions on my end.
0: Yeah, one way of thinking about it is you're not going to be if you had if you could sit down in a room with Joe Biden, and he didn't doesn't fall asleep or doesn't need to get Adderall injected, or maybe you should inject him with stimulants just so you could have a conversation for like half hour. You're not going to be able to convince him using rational argumentation that he is mistaken as to his beliefs on the centrality of Ukraine as this bastion of the rules-based international order and how right. it's the focal point of this cosmic showdown between democracy and authoritarianism or and you're not going to be able to use rational arguments to say that like he he he's wedded to a a uh, rigidly uncompromisingly ideological view of the significance of Ukraine and it goes back decades for him and actually that this area of the world And his kind of ardently liberal interventionist attitude toward it, that is Europe, Eastern Europe in particular, and then Russia. That's been really the only thing he's been consistent about in his entire career. Um, And it's not going to be amenable to reason. He's not a realist on foreign policy, at least in this area. Arguably, you could say he is in Afghanistan. He's in the Middle East. Afghanistan, whatever, but not Europe. I mean, it's a thing, and it's, it's his, it goes back decades. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Whereas, you know, Donald Trump, I I don't think, you know, I wouldn't call him a realist. I wouldn't call him anything as like a, you know, all company, yeah. But like, let's be honest, Donald Trump is not somebody who woke up every day in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s thinking about, how vital it was for NATO to expand into the Baltic states. So like, you're gonna probably have a more, at least, potential to advance those kind of rational arguments with him even if he's not a more rational person overall. He's just not not infusing his beliefs on this stuff with the same kind of unwavering ideological zeal. And the, the unwavering ideological zeal, I think, is the most dangerous part from whatever direction it's coming from Right, now yes. this is another rabbit hole, and I don't want to blow anyone's mind, but like Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a similar ideological hangup in the years leading up to World War II, and I'm not saying World War II could have been avoided, right? But like, it, it was a similar unamenability to that kind of rational <laughs> right. assessment and of the situation, only, and like, like trying to avoid global cataclysm.
3: It's dangerous, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I, it's, it's right. Really uh, yeah. That this. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. I know you've been talking a long time. Just... I know, I need to shut up. No, no, I mean, it was, you were making a good point though, and I, I actually just lost my train of thought, so. Oh, it's okay. Yep.
0: All right, well, uh, Mauricio, I've been going for about three hours here, which is another act of lunacy on my part, but I appreciate you sticking around, and even if you didn't intend to chat with me, glad to uh connect. No, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later, everybody. Get the hell out of here. Do something better with your time. What is wrong with you people?